What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm your host, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm also the film editor at Consequence of Sound, and I'd like to introduce my guests for this, the final episode of Filmography, John Carpenter. Mike Vanderbilt of Daily Grindhouse. This is Mike Rothman, editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound. Michael meeting Michael, like Kramer and Kramer before you. Yeah. Truly, this is a landmark moment. We got three Michaels on this episode because you're also forgetting of Michael Myers. Oh, God damn it, Mike. Little Mikey Myers. The only reason I came on this week's episode was to work with the one and only Mike Rothman. Oh, my God. My play brother right well, here. Yes. Worlds colliding on brother a collision course. Door. Lincoln Park and Jay Z, two thousand three. <laughs> we both hate the same things and like the same things mostly. <laughs> this is this is very very true. And also speaking of that uh, that album that you referenced, I I particularly liked its use in Michael Mann's Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> These guys have an ex. You guys have an excellent Miami Vice poster in oh, the yeah. uh, in a break room that uh, was given to us uh, by uh, CPN director Cap Blackard, who got to meet uh, all the artists who did the comic for Miami Vice. So it was pretty cool. Well, for our last week, our last episode, we have a strange assemblage of Carpenter's movies under the final of our thematic umbrellas, Carpenter versus Americana. And in a way, every episode we've had up to this point has kind of built to this, in the respect at least that all of his movies grapple with American politics, particularly through the second half of the 20th century. They grapple with the social order they grapple with privilege sometimes they grapple with an invisible chevy chase but we'll come back to that um the question i want to pose to you both in opening is how do you view john carpenter's america i would like to see it as i guess i see it as like a norman rockwell painting that uh, just has little, you know, eccentricities in the background somewhere. You know, I think he likes to play with the background a lot in, in his movies and very well lensed, uh, especially uh, when he's really getting into real America, which I feel like these films really do a good job at, uh, you know, showing as a portrait, as opposed to the other films that you've been covering already in this series. 
I think this is like pretty much the truest version of America that we see in any of his other films. You know, I mean, maybe other than like Assault and Precinct 13, but with this, you know, he has a very, um, you could basically tell he, he grew up in the 60s and 70s watching these movies and, and obviously the 50s too. You know, there's, there's a very um, old school quality. Well, and I think to elaborate on that old school quality, too, there's a very working class sensibility to a lot of his work. And you're going to see this especially in a couple of the films that we're talking about tonight. But no, there's very much a look onto, you know, how the other half lives, so to speak, to invoke the cliche. There's definitely a lot of consideration of, you know, the lives of people in the margins. A couple weeks ago with They Live, we had a discussion about how it's one of the only movies you can really think of major American films that deal with the homeless as primary protagonists. And in a couple of the movies we're discussing this week, you're going to see this idea of America as a place that's idyllic on the surface and terrifying just beneath. And to build on that, I think uh, the I was on the episode where we talked about John Carpenter versus the man with Assault on Precinct 13 and Escape from New York. And very much... Those films were kind of about the outside closing in on Americana, uh, you know, white flight, drugs, crime, whereas particularly two of the big hitters this week, Christine and Halloween, are about, uh, you know, terror from within. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, Michael Myers was born of the suburbs. He came from the outside. He came from inside the suburbs and tore it up from there. Same thing with Christine, you know, uh, ultra cool, you know, retro car. And they all seem to take place or kind of deal with, and I guess Memories of an Invisible Man will be a stretch to this <laughs> nature, but sort of iconic pieces of America, you know? And, you know, you've got Halloween, you know, when you just look at the holiday itself. It's a very American holiday, even though it has its roots in, you know, Druidism. And Halloween, the way we celebrate it, is very American. Oh, yeah. And that's the way it's portrayed in, in Carpenter's film. And then you have Elvis, who's obviously one of the most iconic superstars of all time with america and just even the plymouth that's in christine granted that's not carpenter's um you know project per se you know came out of the mind of stephen king but you know you look at this and you could just see they're they almost like seem like monopoly pieces all these of uh of america in itself <laughs> as for memoirs of an invisible man uh, i guess we could just uh, you know sum it up under the government or the nuclear family uh, as we see in the ending of the film so I think there's a lot to take from these films, especially, and just how Carpenter kind of looks at America from a more realistic lens. And I keep, you know, hammering on that because, again, like out of all his other movies, they all have some sort of dystopian post-apocalyptic quality. And even Memoirs of Invisible Man doesn't have that. It's based and steeped in a very real reality where the government, as Carpenter would probably believe having grown up in the 60s and 70s is something that you don't trust and you don't trust it at all in this movie. Well, and I feel like that's a good way to jump over into our main discussion this week. And as we've already alluded to, our four films up for conversation this week are going to be 1978's Halloween, 1979's Elvis, Carpenter's other TV production at feature length, 1983's Christine, and 1992's Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And I actually think that Memoirs of an Invisible Man may as well be where we start today, because there's no organic way into it, because it's another strange outlier in John Carpenter's filmography. Max. Magnus Gothic's doctor. 
Last Wednesday, I was inside when it happened. I beg your pardon? Give me a dollar. They could be watching us. Does the word invisible mean anything to you? Man, we're up for a minute. Nobody likes Memoirs Invisible Man, right? Oh, that's not true. I absolutely adore this film. And I was this was actually the film we did our dissected in our ranking back in 2015 uh, when Carpenter originally released Lost Themes. I, like, championed this movie. And I, like, hopped on. Even though Dom and I were just, like, neck high in snow in Park City, Utah, I made sure, out of all the film reviews I had to do that week, I made sure that I got to dissect that film because I just, I love that movie and I am going to um, champion it uh, while I'm here on this podcast for sure. Well, I think one of the weird things about discussing Memoirs of an Invisible Man as a Carpenter movie is that it's so distinctly uncarpenter. Yeah. And we've talked about this a few times over the course of this series. We talked about it with Dark Star in some respects. We talked about it with Starman. We're going to talk about it again here because it opens up an interesting question. If a filmmaker with a distinct set of themes and visual stamps and hallmarks to their craft does a studio job and they do it so well that you can't see any of that, is that craft in its own way? I would agree with that. I mean, because well, Carpenter never really wanted to be an auteur. He kind of, I think, from what everything I've read in the 70s, his, he wanted to be a scriptwriter for hire mm-hmm. and a director for hire, like Howard Hawks or... Uh, any of those guys that he admired, who all became auteurs in their own right, though. Yeah, which is actually kind of the best way to become an auteur, I feel. Uh, you know, those that kind of go out there and try to make it them, you know, as this kind of self-proclaimed auteur, <clears throat> oh, Holly, uh, I would say is, you know, it doesn't always end up to, to be the reality of things sometimes. Well, what's really interesting, I bring up the question because I don't think Memoirs of an Invisible Man is necessarily the worst version of itself that it could have been, all things considered. Having said that, it is such a homogenous movie that it is strange, Mike, to your point a moment ago, that someone like Carpenter, who at this time again by the early 90s, had already kind of come in and out of his prime in the studio system and had already been very public about his tenuous relationship working within the studio framework. When you had a filmmaker of that nature who was so distinctly opposed to working in that system, it's weird to see him then go back, isn't it? Yes, because this does feel like something that, you know, like, look, we're going to be talking about Christine soon, but that was a film that he felt he compelled to make because he had to do some sort of make good after the thing, you know, which was obviously bombed. the worst movie ever. Oh, just made. awful. Let me tell you, it's not my favorite. worst in Memoirs of Invisible Man. Oh yeah, let me. You know, when I when I rank John Carpenter movies, I think of Memoirs at number one, and then the thing at number two. Uh, no, I'm just joking. But it's. It, I mean, it's weird to think in hindsight now that he was kind of you know in timeout, and this is something we just I just discussed on the episode when we we discussed the Beyond and all. But it's. But he did feel as if he needed to make a comeback of sorts. And, you know, with memoirs, I don't think it was as similar to that as Christine. You know, I think it was more or less just the right people at the right time. What was the film they did before memoirs? Oh, God, wasn't it? um, It would have been They Live. They Live, yeah. Wow. There's a four-year gap there right at the turn of the 90s. I felt like I might have been missing something in there because I was like, it couldn't have been that long. 
Well, it's interesting because I remember when I was trying to think about all the movies we're doing for this episode, Christine was the one that was lost on me. And I kept thinking, God, is there another movie in the 90s that's right before Memoirs that I'm not thinking of? Like, what am I not thinking of? Which is funny considering I'm on the Stephen King podcast and I should know that <laughs> just off the top of my head. But I have a lot to talk about with Christine. But with with this, it, it, it does. it is weird that there is a four-year gap after they live. And again... You know, I think that in hindsight, for sure, now you can see that Carpenter. I always say that his 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 diamond his diamond years is like from seventy six to about eighty six with you know Big Trouble in Little China, and after that, it kind of gets hit or miss. However, now it add a couple more years and include Prince of Darkness in there because I absolutely love that movie now, having revisited it. But um, I think after this time it felt like the right thing for him to do because a, you have Chevy chase that's championing your name, which, you know, we make fun of Chevy chase now, but at the time still Hollywood hunk, um, and still going out there, you know, big blockbuster star for him to, to get, you know, someone like that nature to come in. And also you had, I mean, the conceit of this started with like William Morris attached to it or, you know, not, not William Morris, so William Goldman. This movie has a very, interesting history yeah, that I was like, not aware of. Oh, it absolutely does. William Goldman was attached at one point and wanted to make something that was clearly a lot more existentially searching yeah. in the vein of Starman than what this film ended up being. Um, my other favorite anecdote is that this was originally an Ivan Reitman joint. Yeah, which makes sense. Which, yeah, I wanted to chime in having uh, watched it last night, was that this very much feels like, even in 1992, still trying to redo Ghostbusters. Yeah. They were really trying to make a sci-fi comedy, and it sounds like the reason that it just didn't work is all because of Chevy Chase. Yeah, I mean, he really wanted to do something that was... Um, a little more serious. Yeah, and the studio chose Chase over Reitman ultimately, but this was also a right around the beginnings of Chevy Chase as the Chevy Chase we know and <laughs> write lengthy think pieces about on Sundays today. Well, it's interesting too because not only was Ivan Reitman attached to it, but my uh, my boy uh, Dick Donner, Richard Donner, uh, Superman, The Omen, Lethal Weapon, Director Richard Donner was attached to this because he, you know, has a pedigree with visual effects. And they're like, well, Rich can do this. And um, let's not neglect to mention Dana Olson, who wrote The Burbs, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Here's an admission. I have never seen The Burbs. And I missed it when it played at a music box a, a few weeks ago. And I'm so pissed. We won't go down it, but you got to see it. I know. I know. But then he wrote a lot of junk, too. You know, The, Bur- or not, the Burbs is great. But then he wrote uh, Wacko. If you ever seen that one, Never which I, it's good trash. Yeah, I like it. Okay. But like, I okay. don't think it's. He wrote just a lot of when you look at his output, it's just like, oh, he made all those movies. <laughs> so he's that guy. Uh, yeah, no. but he, you know, he had a hit with the Burbs, and he'll probably forever be remembered for that. Yeah, because he did. Oh God, because after this, he went on to do George of the Jungle, yeah. Inspector Gadget, movies that did well, but probably people saw and then immediately forgot about yeah. now yeah. first of all maybe i'm dating myself but george of the jungle is a treasure in my own childhood <laughs> and i'll thank you to get that name out of your mouth but regardless <laughs> i do i do feel like there's something really interesting happening with memoirs of an invisible man just in how out of time it feels we talked about this last week a little bit in discussing the ward and how that felt at least five years minimum too late to its own party memoirs of the invisible man has a such a studio action comedy sheen over it in all aspects from the unusually soft lighting to the very blase decor 
to the assiduous pleasantry of all of it where even scenes that are supposed to be really dramatic and violent and may involve Sam Neill falling off a goddamn building to his death are kind of played with this milk toast tone that is very of the time mm-hmm. and is also very, very strange because it feels like a movie that is so competent that we can't get really entirely too riled about it, but is also a Chevy Chase vehicle co-starring Daryl Hannah about an invisible man who like learns the errors of his ways as a stockbroker, but also really doesn't. I would say this. The early 90s are some of my favorite films for this very reason. Every decade, it's easy to think that every decade is just this kind of volume or this this thing that just knows what it is. You know, it's self-assured. And, you know, you come into these decades and it's like, oh, well, the 70s, everyone's going to be wearing bell bottoms. <laughs> oh, the 80s, everyone's going to be wearing Wayfarers. No, it takes a while for decades to figure it out. So the first two years of the 90s, <laughs> and this is like pretty much my own salad days is growing up because I, I was around, you know, eight or nine or 10 or so at the time. I vividly remember just worshiping all of these you know these these movies and loving them and also growing up thinking they were from the 80s and because these are like runoff movies i see like like don't tell mom the babysitter's dead or you know even like the the second bill and ted movie it's like all these films that that just seem to be coming that that they seem to be offsprings of the 80s and they but they're not offsprings of the 80s either they're in this weird sort of uh limbo that is in between the two decades. And I would argue that Memoirs of an Invisible Man is absolutely one of those films because it has a lot of like kind of washes and tropes and stardom that is intrinsically tied to the 80s. But then you also have something that is just inherently very modern about it that would definitely be emblematic of 90s filmmaking. Well, and as far as the modernity, the effects work has to be very high on that list because this is a goofy, lower-budget studio comedy with some genuinely pretty impressive effects work. I thought the special effects in this were excellent, actually, not even just for the time. And I liked it in that, and this was very much of the movies of the 80s and the 90s, where a lot of the special effects that were done were, it seemed like this took a lot of time for like a little bit of a joke. Uh, like the scene where he's walking in front of the mirror holding the phone, which I really dug because it reminded me of in Fright Night when there's a shot that yeah. most people don't notice where Jerry Dandridge walks past a mirror and you don't see his reflection and they shot it twice with a robotic camera. And John Carpenter said you had to shoot this movie basically twice because you'd have to shoot it with the visual effects stuff. And that's something you don't get in a lot of modern movies, Mm -mm. simply because there's none of that great, well, how did they do that? Well, yeah, and aside from the inherent corniness of, like, a bunch of the shots still containing Chevy Chase just standing still and mugging because you can't cast a movie star and then not have him in your movie, um, there is a lot of clever effects work, especially with the ways that, like, when he throws up, you can watch a stomach empty into an esophagus. <laughs> yes, that was yes. disgusting. Or when Very. he's smoking a cigarette and you can watch the air filling and exhaling from his lungs. There are these cool little flourishes that, you know, kind of set apart what otherwise is basically just Hollow Man as a studio comedy. <laughs> the thing I love about this film, though, is that, you know, they go, they a lot of people have called it a vanity project or, you know, a passion project of... Chevy Chase is pretty much leaning hard on the Vanity Project. But the thing I, that, that's great about it and how it works in the real life elements just informing a lot of the fictional stuff is that, you know, the Invisible Man narrative 
especially when it deals with men, it, it, it kind of really centers on this emasculation. You know, you, you feel as if you've lost your own body, but you also feel as if you, there's some power that's lost. And there, there's, there's this sort of, you know, obviously identity ties into that. But with this, it, there's this sort of like machismo and st- sense of coolness that seems to be gone when obviously you're invisible because uh, you're not cool anymore. You're just nothing. You're, you're, you've been, you know, you've vanished. And what's interesting about this is that I feel, you know, for me growing up, Caddyshack is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I love that movie for a multitude of reasons. But above them all is the fact that I think Chevy Chase in that as Ty Webb is one of the coolest characters of all time. And I still think that Chevy Chase is one of the coolest icons of his era. Whenever I'm on a first you date, know, I'm basically doing the whole Ty Webb scene Webb, right? where he has where he has her into the uh, in the house. his house. Yes, to keep it. I was born to watch her face. I, I I just love and and with that, it's you know here's an uh, here's a guy that clearly was starting to experience the waning days of his career. And what makes Memoirs of Invisible Man so interesting to me is that there's something really inherently personal about this narrative that's tied to what's going on with Chevy Chase and his career at this point, you know, of time. You know, he probably did feel as if he was vanishing at that point, you know, and he wanted to do something that was maybe a little serious, but can kind of lean on his strengths, you know, and granted Christmas Vacation was a huge fucking blockbuster when it came out like a, you know, a few years prior, but I I see this movie and I see a guy that wants to be cool again from that era and has here's a narrative that can really kind of just siphon that idea and feeling for sure. Well, and there's something really cynical about the way the movie presents Nick, especially because mm-hmm. he's treated very much as a punchline by his friends. Yep. There's something very, very Christmas Carol about mm-hmm. the way a lot of this plays out in that respect. And there's also... Just this running joke of how, you know, Sam Neill as the government agent is not to be trusted from the second he appears on screen. And because he looks like Sam Neill. He does. It's one of Nick. those It's one of those things like when Stellan Skarsgard showed up in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and you're like, oh, that's the bad guy. Yeah. I just saved myself two and a half hours. And Nick, we can help you, Nick. Uh, I'm not Justin. Justin could do amazing impersonations of Sam Neill, but Well, but I think there's something really engaging with that, though, just in the fact that you have this innocuous studio movie. I put in my notes that there aren't so much laughs in this movie as a lot of polite chuckles throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, to your point, you were saying, too, like, I do think that I do love when something's like a bonkers passion project of somebody's. Because I always yeah. find that fascinating, like something like that 1975 movie, The Astrologer, that I was hosting at the Music Box. Like, that's a passion project, and it's so goofy because the guy put all his energy into this. Except Chevy Chase on screen, he's not Ty Webb. He's barely Chevy Chase. He has absolutely zero energy. So, I mean, the script is probably the problem of too many cooks in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and sitting around for too long, but I think ultimately the blame lies on Chevy Chase, why his passion project didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, even the, you know, it's funny because whenever I think about this film, and I loved this movie long before I even realized John Carpenter was attached to it. It wasn't until recently that I knew John Carpenter was even attached Why to it. Why would you think wild. that he was? I know, right? it's just so wild. I mean, I don't even think I realized that he was attached to it until maybe five years ago when, we, when mm-hmm. I did a rewatch or something like I that. I certainly never thought about it because, I mean, I remember seeing Ebert review it on At the Movies in 92 and pan it. And that's yeah. probably why I never ended up watching it. I mean, and I think it's an easy movie to pan, but I do think there's stuff to glean in here that, you know, even from a technical standpoint, it's pretty goddamn um, marvelous, especially given it's 1992. And 
But again, like the thing, the first things I always think about with this film and like the portraits that stick out in my head is just that one part where in the beginning when Chevy Chase's character, Nick, is just wandering around his country club and he's just alone and he's kind of sleeping on like the, the, the you know, the pool table. And there's just this sense of isolation amongst people that seems like such a good visual metaphor to talk about like when you do feel so obsolescent and like the middle you know in the middle of some some sort of party or just even in some type of class i mean he's pretty well to do in this movie well yeah and it's getting at this really interesting idea that was also super relevant in the early 90s when a lot of the people who benefited from the 80s boom had to deal with the economy sort of stabilizing Mm -hmm. out of that insane high you know there's we can sit here and like make the jack off motions about like stories of upper middle class mobility (laughs) that people tend to make nowadays but at the time, the, this was a relevant story for people. And I mean, it might be studio hokum in at least some respects. And we'll get into that in the second <laughs> half when we talk about the technical facets a little bit more. But I think it's really interesting to draw out that parallel of Carpenter playing with these ideas of fading men. Mm-hmm. Because jumping back in time about 15 years, little shy of 15, you go back to 1979 with Elvis And you have a carpenter very much playing with similar ideas of, you know, a man who's supposed to be living the dream, living a faded version of it. Yeah. Elvis is probably is probably one of my favorite. John yeah, Carpenter I remember movies. seeing that on up like really high in one of your rankings on Twitter. And I only saw it recently, and a lot of it has to do with my being just a tremendous Elvis fan, which yeah. comes from my mother being a tremendous Elvis fan. So I knew who Elvis was from a young age, and I just and what I, I think what fascinating about this Elvis movie versus the other million Elvis movies that have been made is that it was released on television. Like a year and a half after Elvis's death. Yeah, which is so interesting because there's not a lot of hindsight there. And I don't really feel like this film gets at the nitty gritty of, you know, really what sort of, sort of the, the sins of his own sort of lifestyle. I don't think it actually gets to any of it. No, well, I think I, what I, you know. I. Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, what I really like about it is that it's less about the legend of Elvis yeah. and more about the man. Exactly. Yeah. I actually. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to start discussing it because the way it's structured, you have Kurt Russell walking you through the entire life of times of Elvis. And if yes, it does invoke walk hard. Totally. A lot. Yeah. Like more than most movies to the point where I almost wonder if Jake Kasdan was influenced by this to an end. Could have been. I mean, he might have seen it like on TV. This is a huge film on television at the time. And honestly, we talked about this on Slack, Dom, is that it's kind of unbelievable that this was actually a TV movie because it, it's it's not shot like a traditional TV movie at all. No, it's weirdly eloquent in yeah. the way it frames Elvis's life because maybe it's because I've been watching the recent A Star is Born a whole bunch recently, but there's an intimacy to the performance sequences in this film as well that kind of makes it pop because even when Elvis early in the film is playing at, you know grand openings and things like that 
there's a way that Carpenter frames him where he was already larger than life before he becomes a star, which is pretty standard biopic filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But I think what sets this apart is how, yeah, maybe it's budget because it's a TV movie, but you don't have a lot of Elvis's zeniths represented through big grand scale performances. You have a lot of furtive discussions and a lot of like the interior side of Elvis. Well, I'm trying to think of how many movies were at this time were musical biopics, you know? I mean, like you had the Buddy Holly story that eventually came down the road with Gary Busey. That's another great one. Too. Great, great movie. But I mean, 1979, I mean, what was, I mean, other than you, I mean, you had a lot of musicals, obviously, and you had a lot of films about music. Well, yeah. And you but, had a lot of stories, even of like the rise and fall of fame. That's yeah. as old as Hollywood. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we always like to, you know, pin a lot of the shit on uh, baby boomers, but like Elvis was like a definitive stopgap, like a, a big thing for the boomers. And as far as, you know, culture, but also just, at its base, rock and roll. So, yeah, there probably weren't a lot of biopics. Yeah, because they hadn't started dying yet. And yeah. in... Oh, God. And in fairness... That's a really good point. Yeah, and in fairness, too, you know, going back to that point of lacking hindsight, I think is really important in discussing this film because it is a very much like a surface-level Life and Times of Elvis story, but it also captures the tragedy of him that nowadays we're sitting here in 2018 is as tantamount to the Elvis legend as anything else. You know, we think of him on Ed Sullivan, but we also think of him, you know, the dying on the toilet and all of those ends of the Elvis story. Those things are part and parcel of one another these days. At the time, there's something almost a little bit bold and transgressive about so much as challenging the Elvis legend Mm -hmm. In the way that I think at least parts of this film try to. And there's something really kind of bold about the way that it challenges it so quickly after his passing. Well, I do take it back because I said that the Buddy Holly story came out years later. It was actually a year before this. So it, was come, it came out in 1978. Uh, Steve Rash uh, had directed it. And, I mean, Gary Busey was nominated for an Oscar. So And he died, and Buddy Holly died early. That's why they were able to get that movie out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I now looking back, knowing that I can see a lot of the, the some sort of visual ties to the between the two films. Although I think this movie has far more cars in it. You know, I think I think what sixty five percent of this movie takes place in cars. Yeah. Arguably, you know, there's but that's the thing. It's a very like it's a chatty and very mm-hmm. conversational movie in the way where you know to it being an anomaly as a TV movie it there's this weirdly i mean oh, this is a modern phrasing but indie sensibility to totally parts of it totally i agree yeah it's very impressionistic in the way that it pres- you know presents its scenes and even its dialogue i mean we're very far removed from a lot of the very pivotal moments and scenes like you know when you know when his mother dies uh, spoiler alert uh you're you're actually viewed as if you're almost like watching it from the window in the in like you know in the hospital and even when he like buys his parents the homes like you're almost like farther down on the driveway like there, there's this the kind of like sense of you know you're always at an arm's length it seems in some of the you know some of the moments that gives it a little bit more of a portrait that you can kind of just take in i mean even when he like one of my favorite shots of the film is when he's like on the lake or at, on this, you know, like on the side of the lake with his girlfriend earlier on in the film, and it literally looks like, you know, that, you know, when I mentioned Norman Rockwell before, but it literally looks like a Norman Rockwell painting, and so I mean, 
even for the television medium, I feel like Carpenter was really kind of just, you know, going for the gold here. And again, this is only like a year after his, you know, two, yeah, a year after his biggest hit at the time, Halloween. So, you know, this definitely caught him at some sort of peak level. But yeah, I, I, I the, the indie filmmaking thing is definitely true because that's it. I was surprised by how it didn't feel so scripted as I expected it to to be a being a nineteen seventy nine movie. You and know? I think the quieter moments. Like you said, the way they're shot lend to how terrific the performances are. Yeah. And Carpenter, and I, I mean, maybe I'm showing my cards earlier for the question we're going to have later, but where we talk about our favorite shot, but that whole sequence at the Grand Ole Opry where he's playing for... Uh, or Sam Phillips. Sam yeah. Phil- it was Sam Phillips. Charles Cyphers was playing him, and it was, I think it was Sam Phillips. Yeah, it's Sun Records. And um, the performance is gangbusters, even if it's not Kurt Russell singing, because it was an uh, Elvis... Uh, yeah, it was a uh, Ronnie McDowell. Yeah. He had a singer and one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the film to the point of performance then is how great Russell is and how much energy he brings palpably despite not performing this music. You know, there's something to be said that he really doesn't look exactly at all like Elvis people say, but I think he looks close enough mm-hmm. and he's just got that swagger of Elvis. And I believe that's just Kurt Russell being Kurt Russell. No, he has the presence down, but I think even more importantly, Elvis, if you look at old footage of Elvis, always looked like he was carrying a lot of weight no matter what he was doing. One of the reasons those beach films are so damn funny in hindsight is that you have a guy who's clearly a more soulful performer than the kind of role he's being given, trying to bring like gravitas to these light Rock Hudson-esque roles. Which is a good point to mention that uh, if anybody listening to the podcast hasn't seen King Creole, like if you're going to watch just one Elvis movie, that's the one to do it. It's got some great performances from Elvis in it, but it all makes sense because sometimes it's a stretch about why he's performing music and whatever role he's playing. You know, Eddie Murphy did a good bit in Delirious about that, but <laughs> it makes sense why he's doing the performances in this movie. And it's basically a film noir with uh, Walter Matthau as the big bad. It's uh, worth checking out. You know what's interesting is that, you know, we're talking about Russell's performance, but I I just did some, you know, digging and trivia, and he actually worked with Elvis on screen. Uh, when he was a young boy and he was 12 years old and um, it happened at the World's Fair in 1963. And I didn't know that. And that's kind <laughs> of interesting. And I mean, obviously he was a fan because, you know, he'd go on to be in um, uh, 50,000 miles to Graceland. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Like that. 3,000. Yeah. Where they like all are different Elvis impersonators. And I, what I didn't know also is that for the young Elvis part in Forrest Gump, Russell yes. also came in and did his his uh, vocals in that too. So clearly he has some sort of, you know, love for for the king. Well, uh, and one theme I want to kind of bring up today, especially here, and it kind of applies across the board to the movies we're discussing at least until we get to Halloween in any case. There's definitely this grappling not only with class as we talked about in Memoirs of an Invisible Man, But this grappling with what it is to be a man in America Mm -hmm. that you see playing out across these films. In memoirs, it's the idea of being a man robbed of his power, of his presence, of Mm -hmm. the things that make a man a man, so to speak. Here, in the case of Elvis, you get this version of Elvis Presley who, again, for being 
a film not removed very long from his passing, it really captures how much pain he was in for so much of his life. And it makes that a focal point of the Elvis Presley story. Yeah, I mean, it has the sort of age-old trope of having so much stardom, but no sense of identity, you know, because your identity is dictated by all your followers, you know, the six extras that are uh, continuously outside the gates. The Memphis Mafia. Yeah. Or, no, his, his followers are, oh, his gang? Yeah, oh, oh, his lo- gang, but then also, like, whenever they show the gate in the movie, it always seems like it's the same five or six extras that are right outside because you're not going to really notice that stuff when you're doing television and all, but I always, like, laughed whenever they kept driving, and I was like, oh, there's the, you know, there are the six they got to, to hold the signs and stuff. But, um, no, I think that that is true, and I think, you know, you could really make the argument for all of these films that, they have the they the, you know all the films that you talk about today all have this sort of discussion or commentary on what it means to have an american life you know what what is the nuclear family what is what is happiness in america what is you know this this sense of power in america almost too and you know i mean obviously we'll, we'll evolve those themes in very weird ways for halloween but also in christine but with this yeah i mean i think elvis is what what a great character to kind of try to, you know, chew on those themes for sure. Because I mean, for the longest time, I, I mean, I can't stand the guy as much, but I, so that's, that is one thing that we, me and you disagree, uh, will probably disagree on, but I, I, I respect, you know, the, the, the King in the, in that, in that respect, Uh-oh. but, 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 it, um, you know, it is such an interesting figure to kind of pull those, those themes from because he was the defining you know, icon of masculinity. He was, he informed that language in so many ways. And you watch throughout the film Carpenter portray him as this man who was insecure in his own skin Mm -hmm. while setting that template for everyone else, which is a really interesting way to parse out the legend. Because when you watch these, this film, you always get the sense that he's trying to impress his family, his friends, his girlfriends, his wife, and his he never dead, seems settled. Though. His dead brother, because I love, of course, John Carpenter is going to do the only Elvis movie that has a ghost in it. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's too, it's too bad we, uh, you know, you couldn't get a, one of those uh, creepy guys from the fog to, to come in. It was a little <laughs> well, too early for that. I do love the idea, though, of framing. I mean, we can sit here and chortle about how it's obvious storytelling, but again, there wasn't quite a language for this yet. So no. at the time, framing Elvis as this man who was not only burdened by literal ghosts, but who was also kind of a complicated figure because, again, even we were starting to challenge it by the end of the 70s, certainly, but there was still very much a lot of hagiography around rock stars in particular, and even Elvis. Well, sure, we didn't know all that stuff. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have a lot of, as many gossip rags. Like, it was mostly magazines with pictures of who we was hanging out with that week. I mean, until we get to maybe this movie, the Buddy Holly story, which isn't as, I don't want to say lurid, but as um, introspective about... No, no. It's kind of like a more of like, like you know, point A to point B to point C. Because he didn't have his long career either. No. So he was just, it's more like this this 19-year-old kid who holy, holy mackerel, he got a big break. And then you talk about like something like Hammer to God's the Led Zeppelin book, but we didn't really hear those stories. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing. To even hear a 1979 movie openly acknowledge that a big part of Elvis Presley getting over in the first place was that they wanted a white artist with a black sound to put on the radio. Things like that feel kind of Carpenter and kind of bold because we've talked in in the past weeks about, you know, Carpenter's progressive politics throughout a lot of his early filmmaking. There are points throughout this film where that very much emerges as well. 
Absolutely, with the whole, I mean, because that's something people, I mean, I'm sure somebody thought it throughout the 50s and 60s. You know, probably a black singer who wasn't getting on the radio. He sure as shit thought it. But, yeah, we weren't going to talk about that openly. No, no. Well, what publication outside maybe Rolling Stone would bring that up? And not even Rolling Stone. Because they were so still enamored with the legend of Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what you still get for the most part here. I mean, I I bought the Blu-ray for this, and, you know, Carpenter is interviewed, and they have, like, a lot of the, you know, the the sort of fun behind-the-scenes segments that they would play on TV to to drum up hype for the, you know, the airing. And he does, and they they ask him, and they're like, well, are we going to find out stuff about Elvis that we don't know about? And and he's like, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff here that you're not going to that you probably didn't know about. And, you know, Priscilla Presley had to supervise the script. I think she was like paid fifty thousand dollars to supervise the script, which is kind of interesting. But so I do think there is there were a lot of relevatory stuff, you know, stuff in here. But in terms of like actual criticism, when you're that tied that, you know, when you're tied that close to the family and everything. You're not going to have that as much. It's like kind of like yeah. what we had with the problem with like Straight Outta Compton like a couple of years ago. And you have the producers who are literally the members <laughs> of the thing. How are you really going to have, uh, you know, uh, you know, not a biased And they story softened though. that story up quite a oh, bit. Oh, big time. Big time. Yeah. Right? And even the Elvis story is softer than we came to know. But again, with hindsight of time on our side, you can kind of step aside and see where that was, you know, that might have been essential, at least at that point. Well, I always wonder how much perspective and time plays into these stories, because uh, did you guys watch that documentary about Elvis? Uh, was that South by Southwest? was on HBO, The Searcher. It's very good, and it focuses on the 68 comeback special, which uh, I don't recall they really go into too much. I don't think so. In, no. in this, which is probably my favorite era of Elvis, and I love White Drumsuit era Elvis, too. But it... They reveal in that a little bit more about exactly how much the colonel kind of controlled Elvis a little bit and kept him under his thumb. And you really didn't hear about that 30 years prior, 20 no, years no, prior. No. And how much of that is stuff that actually happened or just conjecture from the filmmaker building on that myth or legend or putting their own spin on what they think happened. Well, it's kind of, I always look at biopics and anything historical fiction wise, the same way that comedy applies to historical events. You know, I was talking to my girlfriend um, yesterday about how interesting it is that, you know, hashtag never forget is like a, kind of like a punchline you could put on Twitter. I mean, I do all the time. It's funny. But nobody in, in, nobody in the right mind would ever have done that you know in 2002, in 2002 or 2005 yeah. or 2006 because there is some sort of reverence there that you know that that comes from not only just the surrounding culture but those involved and i think that has to do with a lot of people with a lot of biopics because you're only going to get the stories from the source material and the source material and those people that are there to talk about it probably need a few years to distance themselves from it to be i was gonna to say out, you know? as long as colonel tom parker is still around to you know curate his own legend yeah. in the myth making capacity he's not gonna sit there and tell the dirty truth that's a story as old as time you know history is written by the victors so mm-hmm. to speak history is written by the people also who stick around long enough <laughs> to be the authorities on it yeah so i mean i think we are still due for like a true blue elvis movie I would say, um, though I do really want to watch that documentary because isn't that all about like it's a like commentary on America and stuff too? It's it? no. it's slick and it's yeah. uh, no talking heads. It's all just archival footage and narration. Tom Petty's on it, Priscilla's on it. They got uh, whatever band members of his are still 
with us because yeah. I think the original band. I think there's only one guy left. Oh, interesting. I mean, it's been so long. That's a, that, that's the thing. I always, uh, you know, it's interesting because I always see Priscilla Presley. Uh, walking around, and she still looks identical as she did when she was in like the Naked Gun movies of yeah, Demet, yeah. So. She she was down at South by Southwest. Oh, really? She's, she's still, and to your point about yeah. her being on set, she's still out there making sure that everything is approved from the Elvis estate. Wow. Well, and in the same way that Elvis very much plays around with like major American iconography of the time. If we jump over to Christine then, just a few years later, you're going to have another movie playing around with another quintessential 50s American icon, The Muscle Car. Let me tell you a little something about love, Dennis. It has voracious appetite. It eats everything. Friendship. Family. It kills me how much it eats. But I'll tell you something else. You feed it right... And it can be a beautiful thing, and that's what we have. You know, when someone believes in you, man, you can do anything, any fucking thing in the entire universe. And when you believe right back in that someone, then watch out, world, because nobody can stop you. Then nobody, ever. Specifically, the Cherry Red Plymouth Theory. 57, I believe, yes? It's build a 58 in the book and the film, but I believe it's a 57 on screen. Ah, because they were only made in white. There were no, There were none made in red. Well, let alone reassembling yeah. Cherry Red Furies. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So the um, total production for the 1958 Plymouth Fury was only 5,303. So they were really difficult to find um, and, and produce. So good job, King. And uh, figuring uh, you know, figuring out the name, you know, build this whole entire story around a rare car and all. So <laughs> A rare car that would get destroyed several times <laughs> yes. throughout the production of yes. Christine. Apparently by the end of shooting, only two of the cars were still intact. So this is Carpenter adapting Stephen King, the only time he would do so, despite how hand-in-hand the two often feel because of era and time period as much as anything. And this is early 80s King, which is King when anything he turned out would be an immediate bestseller, which hasn't really changed, but bestseller meant a hell of a lot more in the early 80s than it does nowadays. No, totally. And what's interesting about this one is that this film adaptation came out literally months after the book did which is wild i and believe I have, it was optioned before the book was even was. published right yeah, because that's how big he was as a name at that point you know? I, I wanted to ask a question because i'm not as big a fan of stephen king mm-hmm. as uh you guys are <laughs> um despite growing up in the same era but this is absolutely one of my favorite john carpenter movies yeah and I want to know how close it is to the book itself, simply because it has a very satisfactory ending, which is one of my biggest problems with a lot of Stephen King stuff. Well, it's interesting because the the Carpenter and you know Bill Phillips, who did the screenplay, they definitely chiseled down um, and and really trimmed the fat of the book. Because controversially, one of the episodes that we did for the Losers Club, it was one of the most anticipated episodes at the time because you know it's one of the more iconic books of King. But we were not too thrilled with the book because there's just it's told from like varying perspectives for dubious reasons. And there's just a lot of explanation as to why the car is the way it is. Whereas in this one, you never really know. No, I so much more effective. Kind of assumed it was possessed by the brother. But no, because no, the brother owned the car first. Yes. But in the book, he has another brother who had it beforehand. And then. 
the ghost of the brother starts appearing and then you know arnie starts taking and exhibiting those you know behaviors of the brother yeah. and not that you just, need it but you, you don't can, need it yeah. it's fun to talk about with your friends on your podcast to- and yeah dissect it but you don't need to put it no. explicitly in the film no i actually prefer the film this is one of the rare cases where the film is just i feel 10 times better than the actual book well i mean i wanted to talk about i mean just for a minute how i feel like almost this is another example of carpenter truly as an auteur because he he took somebody else's story it much like what uh michael mann did with manhunter mm-hmm. uh somebody else's book thomas's harris novel and truly made it that movie is a Michael Mann movie. Oh, absolutely. And Christine is completely a John Carpenter film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it helps that, like, I mean, at every level, Carpenter's just on fire here. Uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, like, it has one of his best scores, a score which I would argue is uh, the conceit for the Stranger Things theme at this point. You, they're so similar, it's insane. I mean, surprisingly, Dean Cundey is not the cinematographer of this movie. Who did shoot this one? It was uh, Donald M. Morgan. But it looks as if, you know, Dean Cundey did this It's film. got those wide, those, those terrifically wide shots that Carpenter fucking does better than anybody else. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's interesting you talk about the photography because in the same way as The Fog... He does a really great job of building claustrophobic terror out of unusual concepts. In The Fog, it's this idea of something that's all-encompassing. In Christine, it's the idea of something that is as on-paper ridiculous (laughs) and absurd as a killer car. And translating that to a visual medium in a way where it will still be frightening. And I think for the most part, he musters that here really well. Yeah, and that's what's kind of crazy too because in the book i mean the car literally goes through the house almost like it's a joe dante movie i mean you know like the sequence in gremlins where the the bulldozer just starts destroying that one house because the gremlins are behind (laughs) it It, there's a sequence in the book where the car just like drives up a house to kill this like one person and it's just insane whereas with this film There are some wild and outlandish moments, you know, particularly when it's chasing the bully and it goes through um, that small alley. And I just scream at the television because I'm just like, climb on the car and run away. That car was going to figure out how to get him once he got up on that there. (laughs) That car was too smart. Because if you watch, there are like multiple places for the kid to just jump up and like hang out there, you know, and just be like, all right, I could just, you know, let this car keep smashing itself. But the film moves at such a nice pace that you don't really actually have too much time to think about it and i don't feel it's that outlandish like i I think it grounds a lot of the horror in a way that somehow feels gripping i mean especially when you consider how fucking goofy maximum overdrive would be just a couple (laughs) years after this playing around within the same territory it really casts into relief just how effective carpenter's filmmaking is it's got to be the photography because i can't figure out maybe it's the music maybe it's a combination of all things maybe it's just john carpenter but even looking at that poster right now Mm -hmm. like i get a sense of christine the car's personality yes from it and i can't put my finger and what it is, and this isn't a movie I've seen a million times. I've seen it enough times, but I get a sense of Christine's voice, even well, though Christine doesn't have a voice. And I, and I think it's it's unfortunate that he didn't do more Stephen King adaptations because what Carpenter was so good at doing giving is, a satisfactory is, ending. He's giving a satisfactory ending, but also taking in the inanimate or the unknown or the faceless and making it so frightening 
to such a carnal level that you, it's very unexplainable. Like, why is Michael Myers terrifying? I, it's a faceless. He really is just faceless. And why are the the why do the 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 the, the goons in Assault and Precinct Thirteen feel like zombies, even though they are just regular gang members? So, you know, it's like and same thing with the fog. I mean, you just have these sauntering sort of pirates that just have they almost feel like formless. Also, like I, it's just there's something about that way of him sculpting just enough that our personality our imaginations can take over in such a vivid way you know well and i think in some ways that really invokes classic eric king yes then because you have carpenter doing a movie that feels very classic king Mm -hmm. in a way that few king adaptations even a lot of the great ones i'd argue fail to achieve because from the cornball retro rock soundtrack to the muscle car as symbol of manhood, to the idea of man driven mad by his own desperate arrogance and hubris. There is so much of traditional, like, peak era king yeah. in this movie that it feels remarkable he wasn't more involved, but almost. It, it's also very John Carpenter. One thing I love about this movie, I always said it was the most rock and roll uh, John Carpenter oh, movie. Totally. And John Carpenter's got rock and roll in his blood because he's of that era. Like, yeah. When I interviewed him for Consequence of Sound, mm-hmm. he talked about seeing Elvis, like, being old enough to remember something was happening with that. He was old enough to know something was going on with Elvis yeah. and very much that classic 50s and 60s rock soundtrack that yeah. he uses in Christine to expert effect. Yes, because it's almost like this sort of like rock and roll's evil, which is it's it's almost like he's seeing what his parents saw. Because way. it's weird because uh, uh, back to satisfactory endings, the closing line of Christine's is one of my favorites. Yeah. I hate rock and roll. Yeah. Like I, I don't know exactly what it means, but there's something about it that just so and it's not ultra in the book. cool. It's not in the book. And, and that's, that's probably, I imagine that's Carpenter. Oh, and yeah. yet it feels yeah. completely true to that essence because, again, you know, last time I had you on, Mike, we were talking about how, you know, even late era Carpenter and some of those corny late 90s guitar scores felt like a filmmaker trying to adapt to the times. Mm-hmm. Carpenter doing that in the early 80s is the collapse of the bopping 50s rock and roll in favor of something a lot more aggressive. And it's also very much a nod to which I'm sure King was feeling at the same time too, that that nostalgia exploitation that was coming around in the form of Happy Days and Laverne yep. and Shirley yep. and Sha Na Na and American Graffiti. And this, uh, yeah, this movie just kind of nails that rock and roll thing that John Carpenter, I always liked what John Carpenter said, and we'll talk about Halloween later, but I always liked what he said about Nick Castle as the shape was that Nick Castle wasn't a stuntman. He was a musician. So he had that swagger. Yeah. And I think Christine also kind of has that swagger. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the other things that's really, really interesting about Christine is how it feels very current in Mm -hmm. a way that a lot of the great Carpenter movies do. And I know that's kind of a revisionist reading considering how divisive and largely non-positive the reaction was at the time. But Christine is essentially a movie about a young man who's viciously bullied, attributes basic ornaments of masculinity in America, and allows it to steer him into becoming a psychopath. Arnie is basically an incel as the center of a horror story (laughs) in 1983, and I mean that. Um, Two points on that was, uh, if you guys haven't seen it, and again, for the podcast listeners, I highly recommend anybody in this era go back and rent Massacre at Central High, because it shows what happens when the geeks are bullied and then get too much power, and it's got a... 
in a weird kind of you know preemptive casting uh Robert Carradine, Skolnick himself, Ooh, nice. as one of the nerds. And in the same way we talked about Someone's Watching Me on the John Carver vs. The Man podcast, how that movie kind of, you know, not predicted, but it was talking about the issue of police not believing women in 1978. And this is talking about the same way, well, this is what happens when... This is what happens when the geeks get too much power. And not just the geeks getting too much power, but when we write off the creepiness of young men as simply, oh, you know, it's just boys being boys. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. there's something really angry to Christine in that respect that is also very King. Um, on the Losers Club recently, you all talked about how, you know, King and bullying is such a recurrent Huge. idea in so much of his work. Huge. And down to the bully with the mullet and the knife here. All of that feels very king in this way that really rings out throughout the film. But isn't it weird in the way, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but don't you feel a little bit vindicated when when Christine kills those bullies? Oh, absolutely. You I do. Mean, <laughs> and the film does an interesting <laughs> moral pendulum swing in that respect, where it kind of invites you to get off on that violence a little bit until it starts being the people you're supposed to care about. It doesn't... Because that's the thing. Revenge doesn't see the line between the bad guys and the good guys. And that's a point I think the film illustrates in its typically unsubtle Carpenter way really nicely. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, yes, it goes and kills the bullies. But historically and traditionally, it's those bullies that are driving this car. <laughs> so it's this weird sort of, you know, using his, you know, their own devices against them, like sort of thing that... I think that was absolutely a thematic conceit of King because he he just he must have had a really shit. I up, wonder up, up about that about too that. because something about King's work that I it's in there and I never understood it is that particularly you see it in Stand by Me and mm -hmm. it that the parents just let this stuff happen yeah. with and I don't think that was a thing through the fifties or maybe it was I wasn't there because the parents in my neighborhood in the eighties. If that stuff was going on, the police would be called or yeah. somebody would have stepped in. Like, it's violent. Like, they were worried that in Stand By Me that the kid, that the, you know, the bullies were going to, were going to kill him. Kill him. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing. Not with just it. beat him up. And that, and that's kind of what I love about uh, King's Bullies is because, and we talked about a lot, um, as Don mentioned in the episode, I think it was uh, episode one or part one or part two um, of our It coverage. And we just really shared some awful stories about bullies in the past. And I and I think it's it's a good thing that a lot of people talk about this stuff now because even just growing up with my mother who was from the fifties, who who, you know, grew up through the fifties and sixties, there was this sort of hush hush mentality amongst elders. They just didn't want to deal with it. And not know? only was it hush hush, but I'd argue it was rationalized as, well, this is how you learn to be a person exactly. in the world. Yeah. This is the process we went through. Therefore, this is how you can be a person in the world. I mean, I grew up in that same realm where even as late as the 90s, it was always very, you know, you come home with a shiner. That's your own problem. Dust yourself off and learn how to exist in the world. Which but I think there's I, some value to that. Absolutely. I do, I, yeah. Yeah. I just think that there's a level to it where, you know, if you have some bullies that are like, you know, um, threatening to run you over <laughs> and pulling out knives. Yeah. Yeah. You probably want to get some people involved. Maybe. Some, something I was thinking about, particularly after I saw it, it was how much I, I started thinking about the kids that I perceived as bullies, not so much as a young kid, but as a high schooler. 
And they were probably just weirdos like me mm-hmm. who wanted to hang out with me, but I had no idea how to wrap my head yeah. around it because I just assumed, nope, it's some sort of joke they're trying to pull on me. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I had I definitely had a a buddy rapper ten in my life, except that uh, he was anti-Semitic. Uh, so I don't think we were ever going to get along. But there were definitely people that I that started out as bullies that became some of my closest friends yeah. for sure. You know, well, and that's one of those weird again to go back to the theme of the week: uniquely American experiences, oh, totally. where you're just like dumped around a bunch of people you loathe and told that learning to deal with them is just part of life, which it is, <laughs> but you're usually not left so far to your own devices in certain ways because there's also a very latchkey feel that mm. kind of comes over Christine down to the large predominant non-presence of functional adults in the film that will also carry over a little bit to segue out into 1978's Halloween. Excuse me, Laurie. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Yes, sir. Nice seeing you, sir. Which is right around the beginning of that mentality and is right around the time when, you know, your teenagers were on their own doing God knows what, and there was a genuine cultural fear of that. Right off the bat, let me bring up this question. What wild swingers party were all the parents going to on Hollywood night or Halloween night that they weren't watching their kids or taking them out trick-or-treating in 1978? That they needed babysitters. Come yeah. on, man. Yeah. My folks took us, at least took us out trick. Maybe they took them out trick or treating before Lori came over, but the, in 78, I imagine kids were still going out till 9, 10 o'clock. I, I love that you bring this up because every time I watch this, and especially when you pair it with what you find out in Halloween 2, there is this notion that everyone is at some sort of country club or some huge party in Haddonfield. Of anyone over the age of like 27 or 28, <laughs> you know, because. That, that, that is so funny and it's so it's something that maybe that's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is because it it just it just hits on so much of my youth because I remember growing up when my parents would be you know they'd be like all right go out go trick-or-treating we're going to you know the McGregor is down the street and we're gonna have a party you can meet us there if you want but if not you have the key and you can come in and stuff hmm. like that. So there was your parents were cooler than I. They, well, they were. It was just I just remember there always being big parties where parents would just and, and like all my friends, all all of us were just like left you know left behind to do what we what my we parents wanted like. So. Probably by the time I was you know Tommy and Lindsay's age, they were probably letting us run loose yeah. in the neighborhood. Oh, and yeah. in, back then, there were a lot of kids up and down the street, and that's why it was safe because there were just so many of us. Totally, you know? totally. And that's what you know. One of the things that's so inherently American about this film to me is that it really does kind of capture that freedom of the streets of the neighborhood of the safety of the neighborhood. And even though the whole film starts out the sense of danger, you know? well, and we're still trading on that violation of the safe suburban neighborhood to this day. I mean, last year, get out, mind that anew mm-hmm. for a new kind of terror. You know, there is an illusion of safety that I would argue is part and parcel of the modern American dream in a lot of respects totally. where You are entitled to be private. You are entitled to have your family and all of you can feel that you are safe and not have to worry about that. That is one of those unspoken things that are why we have suburbs that are 
like built with a terrible ethnic makeup and things like that. You go through the whole of American history and it's always that pursuit of not actual safety, but the notion of safety. Well, it goes back to in the seventies, you had the issue of white flight with the suburbs and over the edge tackled that. Uh, and there's a line in over the edge where one of the parents explain you, you, you let your kids become exactly what you were running away from or something to that effect. And Halloween kind of builds off that uh, from Assault on Precinct 13 in that, yes, okay, we're not in that city where the gangs are running wild in Assault on Precinct 13. We're in the suburbs where it's safe, but they're not safe. The terror comes from within, as I uh, mentioned in the beginning. And in its way, there's really something to be said for how the terror, Michael Myers, the shape as he's credited is a presence born of that place because it's the ultimate fear that even the safest, most sequestered places on Earth can still breed that kind of terror and violence. It, I mean, we're still struggling with that cultural fear today. We have a terrible time considering white people terrorists even when they commit terrorist acts for that exact reason. We codified an idea of safety that is violated whenever something happens in a suburb, a school, a, a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. a quote-unquote everyday place where, you know, the right kind of person goes and doesn't expect to encounter the wrong, much like Haddonfield. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that whole reveal at the end, or at the end, but in the beginning when they just take off the mask and it's this child, I mean, it's still even shocking to this day, you know? I mean, it's this... Granted, they shoot it at a level where you kind of have an idea that there, you know, that that there is a child, and obviously she says his name. But there is something still so terrifying, and I think that that opening sequence with him. I guess I never thought about that. How you never really know that it's not a until child said, until that mask comes off. Yeah, because I mean, you do see a small little hand grab the but knife. You wouldn't, but have, not really. you wouldn't have thought about no. that in 1978 no. when you were sitting down to see that. No, no, and so there is a shock to the idea that it is just a child. And I think that's something that has become maybe I, I don't know I guess that's an an argument to be had is is it shocking now or even or even more shocking or is it less because of what we've all experienced? I think it's still effective. It's still yeah. effective in a different way, I would argue, because now we're reckoning. So, for instance, if we're talking Americana, let's talk school shootings. The most American thing there is. <laughs> that's true. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's always. Without fail, anytime one of those tragedies takes place, a series of think pieces and discussions and quote-unquote dialogues that ensues in the wake about not just what created this, but it's always very interesting me to how it's put. How did this happen? That's always the recurrent question because going back, the idea that we pay for when we buy our three-level McMansion in a suburb 45 minutes in any direction outside of a major city is that those will be someone else's problems. You are paying 300 grand on a house for these to not be your problems implicitly. So when suburban high schools have it dragged across their front step, therefore, you have this new terror of, we did everything we could to avoid this, how did it find us anyway? which in its perverse way is the fear that Halloween's trading on. And I would argue the reason that 
more than almost any other horror property, we keep returning to this story for as simple as it is. And we keep rebooting it and we keep rehashing it. Mm -hmm. There's a Hollywood hit in theaters as we record this podcast that is yet another version of it because there is something that taps into a very spine-level piece of the American promise that people find horrifying. And I think you nailed it as to why the sequels haven't worked in that they always try, they always make an attempt to explain away Michael Myers, and all that first movie is saying is that evil exists, evil exists in the suburbs, evil, evil exists in your house, or it can exist. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and it shouldn't be sequelized. I mean, the, the whole point of the ending is is it just i mean it, it couldn't be more blunt on you know on the nose that it's always it's out there it's behind you it's around you you don't know where it is it's at every you know it's in the shadows it's at every corner uh you you just have to be aware you have to be alert and and, and i think that that sort of terror is just totally destroyed whatever you follow up on that you know it's just like well, okay, well because it also it? preys on the fear okay you have to be alert you're also paying for the idea essentially you don't have to be alert i shouldn't have to be scared i shouldn't have to be worried mm-hmm. and that as much as anything is the violation that the whole michael myers idea i would argue trades upon yeah and John Carpenter, I cannot find where his quote was, but I remember reading it in a Fangoria or something when I was a kid that it, when he approached him to do a sequel, his idea was that it was going to be no Michael Myers, just mm-hmm. about the town dealing with the fear of it. Yeah. And I was very disappointed, not that we won't get off on this, that they didn't take more of a notion with that with uh, the new Halloween. Oh, absolutely. I mean, honestly, one of the best screenplays that was never put into production was the original Halloween 4. Uh, because you know, as we know now, the the conceit of the series became an anthology once Halloween two finished, where we see, you know, Myers literally burning in flames and it being no over. eyeballs either. No eyeballs either. Uh, <laughs> and the third one, very underrated third one, season of the witch, taking an anthology approach. The fourth one was to your point because they were so insistent on bringing Michael back. Dennis Etchinson actually wrote this amazing script about fear bringing him back and that Myers isn't even really existing anymore. It's just the fear of the town bringing back this sort of like sort of shapeless, you know, this ghost, this ghost. Yeah. That becomes bigger and bigger as you know, the fear becomes that much more, you know, that greater. And it was so cerebral and it's such an interesting idea for the movie, but you know, well to touch on it in the abstract for a second, the very idea of the shape pursuing Laurie and the victims The shape is in and of itself terrifying because it's the ghost in the shape of a man. Mm -hmm. It is a direct physicalized representation of our sins and our fears and our anxieties and our neglect. And the idea that every wrong move could result in something as extreme in terms of repercussion as this being. I know it's just a William Shatner mask in real life and it was as much for economy as anything, but it kind of physicalizes this idea. The thing that's coming for you then is not a ghost. It's not a specter. It's not a demonic possession. It's not anything but a man with a knife that is going to get you. Yeah. And the white face is very much a cipher. White face can be anything yeah. that terrifies you. Yeah. White face, blank eyes. Yeah, nothing to it. Might as well be Jaws. I mean, honestly, the film works almost exactly the same as Jaws. 
you know, even with the way that the music is conducted, you know, you have this like looming sort of, you know, presence with the music and then it just heightens the minute he kind of strikes or comes out and, you know, and I believe, and I could be wrong, um, much like Jaws, the scene where it's not Jaws, when it's the kids with the fin, you yes. never hear the music. No. I believe there's a couple moments, a couple scares in Halloween where you don't hear the music, particularly when I'm thinking of where... Um, well, Annie, for sure, when she's being choked in the, the car, it, it kind of cuts the music out eventually. Like, it does the, you know, the stinger... But you just hear her like, you know, like, like when he's doing his thing. But like where there wasn't like where uh, Laurie bumps into Sheriff Brackett. Yes. Like, you're on edge because, you know, so, but there's, I don't believe there's any music. Playing there isn't there. any there. No, no. Which is uh, I love that. I love that whole sequence. And I always joke around saying that the shot that they have right after that to establish that it's actually, you know, Annie's father, right? Where Brackett walks up to the house, I always like joke saying like, "What if they took like forty takes of that and just like you just see Brackett just continuously walk up to the house over and over again?" Hey, you know, uh, Charles, we got to do that again. Can you can you come back? Two points about that: I always felt like they were kind of implying him as a red herring there oh, a little interesting. bit. Like I don't know why it's just something I saw about, and also that he may be drunk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it definitely because he has his pipe and he's that he's holding also. Uh, in that sequence, but uh, I love Charles Cypher. Well, and one of the interesting things, too, then, is Carpenter has always talked about how he wanted to pace it out kind of like a radio play where there would be scares at a bracketed amount of time and then ramped up as you get towards the grand finale. I love that, yeah. And you can see that pacing because what I love, and we'll especially talk about this in the second half when we get into sight and sound in a little more detail, but there is so much stillness and silence to Halloween. For being one of the scariest films ever made without dispute, there's a ton of quiet. Sometimes I ask myself... If I saw Halloween today for the first time, would I like this movie? Because I saw it at such an early age that it's just ingrained in my brain, and I absolutely love it. Like This is the reason I bought a Laserdisc player, was so that I could buy the $100 special edition that now you can get for $5 on Blu-ray at, at Target. Hey, but you had that commentary with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. That's why I bought it. That's why I bought it. And... Would I enjoy? Would I? Would I call it a slow burn? Would I say, "Oh, nothing happens till the ending"? Because, like, and that's what I love about the ending of Halloween is how visceral it is. That once it gets going, and even Hereditary, which I really like, I love that, movie. and will yeah. make my top ten. I didn't feel that's it for the conclusion that it was visceral enough, and I think they could have just tightened up the editing on that. I mean, to be fair, Halloween's ninety minutes. Hereditary is two and a half hours. It's, that, that is true. I, I, you know, it's funny. I have the inverse of that sometimes. I, I feel as if would I like the movie even more now as as opposed to I'm always surprised that I love this film as much as I did as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Because I remember giving this to my my girlfriend, for I guess for lack of a better word, because she was just you know somebody that I liked and she liked me and blah, blah, blah. But we were in like fifth grade, fourth grade. And this is around the time that I really became obsessed with this movie to the point where I bought like the blockbuster copy and I just watched it every night. It's probably about the same age for me. Too. And it was it was great. And I, I, I freaked out about it. But I don't and, and I have reasons for why I freaked out about it. But what's interesting is whenever I would show it to people, there'd be some people that really loved it. And then there'd be some people that just most of the people really thought it was boring and hated it. And they just thought it was so dumb because it was like. These people are idiots around Michael Myers and, you know, why, why are they, why is she always dropping the knife and, you know, why are they, you know, doing all these stupid things? And it would break my heart because I'd be like, I don't understand how you don't like this movie. 
and so, but I, I, in hindsight, I always do try to think like, why do, what, what is it that got me about this movie? And I think it is the accessibility of knowing that I grew up in neighborhoods that were very similar to this. And I was always frightened by the fact that maybe, maybe it wouldn't be a man in a mask or something like that, but there'd just be something there. And whether I thought it was a ghost or a goblin or something. So it's not even the first time I've brought it up on this season of filmography, but it's that Mulholland Drive fear, the fear of the Mm -hmm. diner scene, the fear that something is not just existent in the periphery, in the back of your head, that you're not just being irrational that's fear, but having that fear validated then in real life, <laughs> which she is does in something, the movie, exactly, yeah. is something so violative and so spine level frightening that you don't know how to deal with it. And that's why films like Halloween, like The Shining, that are very patient in their pacing, mm-hmm. that might not work for every audience are the ones that tend to last, I would argue, because they hit you on a more primal level in a way that not even the best executed jump scare in the world could. I agree. In, in 1986, I was terrified to run across the alley from the McInerney house because I thought the giant critter from the end of Critters was out in the alley. <laughs> I, that's because we, we had been watching it. I go, I don't want to rock and roll. You know, it's funny as I, I've talked about it a lot in the Losers Club, but I, what my, my childhood fear growing up was Abraham Lincoln, which is ironic that I moved to the land of Lincoln. But I, uh, it was the, the 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 strictly the the height and that sort of gaunt uh, look. And I think a lot of that the reason why and, and it's weird because I've never really considered Halloween very terrifying to me. It was it, it, there's something there's actually it's actually something comforting about it. Like I, I, you I said that on uh, the Halloweenies podcast, yeah. and I I agreed with that. I, yeah, go ahead. There's just something really comforting about it. And I, when I was talking to Carpenter for the track by track that we did for anthology last year, I said, you know, I gotta be honest with you. I used to fall asleep to the Halloween score because I just think there's something so lulling and and just really atmospheric about everything to do with this movie and you really capture it in this score because obviously the, the score informs this film and actually saved the film. Uh, but th- whether it's Laurie's theme or the Myers house or the way, the blues that Dean Cundy like washes all over this movie or just the idea that this is such a, a sleepy small town there's just, and I just love the seventies. There's just something aesthetically pleasing about this that I always go back to and I've, and I've since reserved it specifically just for October because I've just overdone it. And I, when I say I've seen this movie like over 500 times, that's not an exaggeration. I used to literally just fall asleep to this movie every night it's growing up. one of my favorite movies to put on in the summer. Yeah. Oh, because, yeah. And it's probably because it's that Los Angeles, you know, feel yep. that it has going because it also feels like, even though it is Halloween, it... That could be, you know, uh, a night in June or yeah. July. Oh, oh yeah. Totally. My favorite thing is that Christine and Halloween were actually shot in the same town. Christine's set in the run-up to Christmas. This is set at Halloween, and both of those films very much look like they were shot in California autumn. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what we talked about a little bit on the uh, John Carpenter vs. the Man podcast, where, you know, John Carpenter loves Los Angeles, and he loves California, because it, uh, it's pra- how Halloween's actually Pasadena. Yeah, it's Pasadena, it's- and then they, they shot some, like the Wallace House and the Doyle House are in, like, North Hollywood or something like that. But it's know? very Los Angeles, and the way he shoots those streets... He loves that town. And you get that sense in Christine and Assault on Precinct 13, even. But he doesn't forget his roots because, you know, he's from Carthage, New York, which is a small town. And, you know, and Deborah Hill had come from Haddonfield, New Jersey, where she took this name from. And 
you know, it's, it's got that very small town vibe. And, and I think that he, and we talked about this a lot in the beyond is that I do think that he brought that small town sensibility to a lot of his works that were set primarily in, you know, LA or, or not even set in primarily in LA or just the way that he, he looked at LA. Cause I yeah. think that he was able to kind of, I think that one of the reasons why he successfully was able to make a lot of LA feel like a small town is probably because he had that sort of upbringing to bring it, but he knew what to look you know, for when exactly. he was out location scouting. Yeah. However yeah. much location, location scouting they did for this on their budget. It's like, that's a house. That's yeah, what we're shooting. Is, hey, it's it, they did something right because like literally almost every other major film in the 80s and, you know, I always pulled I, from it. I always remember Deborah Hill on the uh, commentary for the Laserdisc talking about the dappled sunlight in the uh, it, from the trees and yeah. saying, uh, you'd never really get that on Halloween no, in, no. in, in uh, the Midwest. I mean, most of the time it's freezing here. In the Midwest, it's freezing here. Sometimes All the we get leaves an are gone. Yes, like it. It just has a very different, more gnarled look. And I think that's why I really associated with it growing up is because I come from South Florida, and a lot of South Florida architecture and the way the neighborhoods are built are so similar to Spain because it's obviously it's a Spanish area. Same thing with California. And they all share a lot of the similar qualities. Like my neighborhood is very similar to Pasadena. So when I watched these films, I wasn't even really thinking about the Midwest, so to speak. I was really just thinking like, holy shit, this does feel like my backyard. And there was something, there's just something so timeless about that. And I, I've always wondered if it's just because of my upbringing or it's because of the film itself. I think I, it's because, it's much like Michael Myers is a cipher. So is the neighborhood. So yeah. is the town. Yeah. Like it could be it's anybody. It's like amorphous almost. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think then it kind of ties back to where we began in all of this with the universality of Haddonfield. Because, you know, on paper, this is in a lot of ways the Rosetta Stone for the slasher movie. Mm-hmm. This would, th- there would be an entire decade following of this that would rip off the template that Halloween laid down. But I think what separates them from so many of that films, from so many of those films, is exactly what you two have laid out here. That there is something so anonymous about Haddonfield that it could be anywhere. And that's the spectral terror of Halloween. Michael Myers can walk into your house and find you for no better reason than because you were home. I mean, I think other... I mean, the other movies definitely... Well, they cribbed from it in different ways. Uh, Friday the 13th movies. Like, anybody who's gone camping or has been in Boy Scouts was terrified of Jason Voorhees. Anybody who sleeps... Is terrified of Freddy Krueger, I suppose. Freddy Krueger, yeah, and I and I think with, I think closets and in the way that you peer out the window. I mean, I, God, I mean, a friend of my mom's had those those kinds of closets yeah. in uh, in their basement, and whenever I saw them, I was like, "Those are Halloween yeah. closets." And yeah. of course, that Laurie Strode has them installed in her new place in Halloween, the new Halloween. That Which makes a lot of sense. Hilarious, yeah. Yeah. Well, nice little homage there, David Gordon Green. We we can't get into the new Halloween too much on <laughs> yeah. this episode. We're talking Carpenter, not Carpenter or Jace. But I want us to keep Halloween in mind as we sort of roll into the second half of our discussion and we start talking sight and sound. And to continue into the sight discussion then, and to stay on Halloween for that matter, this is a movie that I would argue as much as anything is probably one of the most influential films on how horror went on to be made in the decades since than almost anything. Yeah. I mean, just the way it's presented 
it's i mean i, I we talked about this a lot on the last podcast for uh halloweenies where we were discussing the current film by david gordon green and one of the reasons why i said i argued for the first film so much is just you know there's not just so much that the sequels are imitators it's just such a different type of film you know the first film itself comes from this upbringing of classic filmmaking and you know carpenter you know grew up with like the howard hawks that you had mentioned before mike and you know he he has a very old school upbringing when it comes to making movies and i feel like he applied that sort of love for hitchcock and uh his the the love for howard hawks into halloween to make it such uh an actual film it's not a horror film to me like this is an actual film like this is a legit like mystery thriller movie that i think just happened to birth the slasher well and i think that's an important distinction to make because especially with the new halloween there's been a lot of dialogue about you know this isn't just a horror film it's a great film and i think it's worth mentioning then especially in the case of halloween 1978 this is back when we could have a serious conversation about, you know, the legitimacy of horror movies. Mm-hmm. You had Oscar love for films like, um, you had love for films like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, certainly. But horror was very much, you know, there were B-movies. Yeah. There were genres that were B-movies, and especially at this time, horror was in a phase where it was largely one of them. But I think there's always been, like, there's always been a certain high art. To horror movies. That's why sometimes I kind of roll my eyes or bristle at the preciousness about that. Because I used to think that as a kid, too, that I used to say, not only is Halloween one of my favorite horror movies, it's just one of my favorite movies yeah. of all time. And there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. No, and I don't either. And I don't look. I mean, horror is my favorite genre. And I have no problems with, with horror having some sort of legitimacy that a lot of people don't give it, you know, like for one of the things that I always rally against in the, on the Stephen King podcast is that, you know, everyone gives shit to Stephen King because, Oh, he's a genre writer. He's not a literary writer. He's a genre writer. And I think that same distinction happens with like, you know, horror and, and prestige films or whatnot. But here's the thing. Halloween is shot and, and, and developed and written and, and just there's a style and aesthetic and a sense of quality to this film that makes it, no pun intended, a cut above the rest. <laughs> because you go look at imitators that came out, you know, years later, and like something like Friday the Thirteenth, which is a blatant ripoff of Halloween, so much so that Jonas Cunningham has literally admitted as much. <laughs> and granted, that film is definitely shot much better than the majority of the, the slashers that came out in the eighties, but it is such a step down to from what you get here, where literally almost every shot from Halloween could be taken and put on, you know, a wall, which is why so many gifs and like, we talked about this with, uh, with the fog, uh, Dom and in a lot of other movies uh, that, the, that were in that episode in that Carpenter is such a, he's such a, he has such an affinity for the perfect shot. And I think that this film out of all of his movies is, is by far his best in that respect. Well, because I think one of the really interesting things that sets the film apart is how, you know, how banal a lot of the scariest images are. We're going to come back to this in lasting image, certainly, but that shot of 
you know, the first time Michael Myers is made visible to Tommy, it's just, it's still, it's the middle of the day. And it's as simple as this one violative image interrupting this perfect idyllic scene. Mm -hmm. And um, not to be the actually guy for a minute, but I did want to bring up Black Christmas for a minute. Oh, I love Black Christmas. And I wanted to point out that, yes, I mean, the reason Halloween is remembered more fondly than Black Christmas, Halloween is a better directed movie. Exactly. To John Carpenter's credit. But one thing that I think, and I don't think Carpenter necessarily ripped this off, but I just want to draw a parallel to one thing I like about the look of Halloween is how Halloween captures the feel and look of Halloween better than most movies. And I think Black Christmas does the same, even better than your more traditional holiday movies, simply because of the warmth that they use in that movie. And John Carpenter does the same thing for Halloween. And I would argue that Black Christmas is like a hundred times scarier than Halloween. Uh, There's something about that film that just is so much more unnerving. Well, it doesn't um, let up in the way no. that Halloween very deliberately to go back to what we were talking about before the break in the way that it very purposely meets out its scares mm-hmm. and sort of takes off the acceleration for purposes of ramping it back up later. And I think that's another part of the disorienting quality of it is that even as it forms this rhythmic again almost 10 minute pattern to the scares they always feel like you're, they're blindsiding you. Mm-hmm. No matter which angle Carpenter finds to hit you from, it always feels like it's out of nowhere. No, I agree. I mean, even with like discussions between the, the, the teens when they're walking home, you know, th- there's just such a sense of style to the way that he walks with them uh, or, or even like the way that it can pivot from, you know, a, what seems like a dolly shot when you're following Linda, Annie and Lori to this perfectly set up shot of my, you know Myers behind the hedge, which has since become you know iconized <laughs> with like every goddamn background online right now. You know, well, arguably, like an entire subgenre of horror is just shit standing where shit shouldn't be standing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was good to go back to something we talked about with Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Something that I think Carpenter very deliberately does in this movie is that he starts out very wide in all of his shots mm-hmm. and Assault on Precinct 13 does the same thing where it gets more and more claustrophobic as the movie goes on until you're inside a, you're outside during the day with your buddies now you're trapped in a closet which he loves I mean Carpenter loves to have these central locations and he loves to just kind of keep strangling you with the walls coming in you know closer and closer and closer I mean you talked about that last week with Prince of Darkness which he does that too Yeah, there's a lot of claustrophobia in his films, and a lot of it is that feeling of making a wide space claustrophobic. We talked about this with Prince of Darkness. We talked about it the week before that with um, Assault on Precinct 13 and even Escape from New York. The idea of making a theoretically free, safe, open space, unsafe, and again invasive, that is an inherent human fear. Well, even think of it in the ending of Halloween here. You know, it's a very deliberate decision to follow Lori that entire time. You know, there's, there's a lot of discussion that I've, I always see whenever, you know, Halloween season comes around where people always talk about like, Oh my God, it's that long walk of Lori walking, you know, up oh. to the house, but it's one of my favorite sequences the in the movie. It's the absolute best. It, it does so much in that sequence because not only does it set up exactly what you're going to need to know later on when she has to run out. Cause, but it also, you know, because it sets up the distance between the two houses, 
but it also adds a bunch of personality to Lori, and then it also gives you this such atmosphere, especially when you have like the bird sounds, then you have that gorgeous score that's in the background. But what you also see in this is just how, to your point, Dom, how he's able to take that wide open space of the neighborhood and then just slowly get to the kitchen, which is so wedged tight that even you just have that one little door, which eventually has the the rake that Michael puts behind it. But it just it's this slow, narrow space that gets even more narrow and then even darker. And and then they use that darkness to kind of illuminate him to come out of that doorway at the end. And you just feel as if you're in a tomb at that point, you know. To two points on that, uh, uh, the place at Timbar at the Rock Island Public House, we have a copy of Halloween that does not have subtitles. And we put it on, and yeah. it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It no. doesn't matter. Uh, mostly because most anybody who hangs out there has seen this movie umpteenth times and <laughs> knows the dialogue. But I just, and I kind of like watching it just silent. And it goes to your point about the having the perfect shot. And also, just a uh, to plug the Daily Grindhouse Twitter feed, we had a tweet go viral last Thursday. Uh, somebody cut together, somebody recorded audio from a 1979 showing of Halloween yeah. on Hollywood Boulevard and added it to a high, you know, a high definition. It's the last, it's from like the, when the kids run out of the house up to, up to when uh, Loomis runs up the stairs and through the ending. Yeah. And just listening to that audience go bananas through that whole sequence is something I think every Halloween fan needs to experience. And it makes me long for vocal audiences vocal audiences that are paying attention to the movie no, of course right. yeah yeah there's definitely a difference in that yeah. and that gasp sure. when they i mean again not to it's probably not my favorite it's one of my favorite shots when there's nothing on the yeah. ground and the whole audience gasps because they all know they have to walk home that night yeah i love that and there's something about the anonymity of the evil that makes it all the more terrifying which then to jump back into christine as far as visual goes there's a lot of trickery from Halloween that Carpenter very directly invokes in the film using the car. Carpenter knows how to shoot cars and make them look cool. There's a shot in uh, Someone's Watching Me that he also utilized in Halloween that I absolutely love of a car making a turn from the back, like from the point of view of looking out the back window, it's when uh, the girls are in the car. And yeah. Michael, one of my favorite shots is uh, "Don't Fear the Reaper" plays, and he does it in someone's watching me, and he's you know he may I you can't help but make Isaac Hayes's car in in Escape from New York oh, look yeah. cool with the chandeliers, and Christine is that's why one thing I love about Christine is that it's him shooting a car for ninety minutes. Yeah. And the, like a cool car too, and that was something he was worried about initially coming into the movie. Rightfully so, because he's like, "How the hell am I supposed to make this scary?" You know, it's just a car. Well, and it yeah. goes back to what we were talking about. Christine on paper is goddamn ridiculous, <laughs> but with Donald M. Morgan shooting again, who did Carpenter's TV work and who was also on hand for this film, he is able to really visualize Christine in a way where it alternately is sleek, is menacing is an absolute creature of death, especially in that one great shot where it's in pursuit after pulling out of the charred petrol station and is just tearing up the dark highway on fire and reduced basically to cinders. You know, it gives the car a presence of character that in theory this inanimate object should not have or anything close to it. Or even the color palette, you know, which he uses to his advantage for sure in um in halloween and 
and especially with Assault in Precinct 13 and, and, and definitely an Escape from New York. But with this, it's like, you know, the glow that comes from the car that washes over Arnie when he's driving. He kind of looks like a ghoul behind the wheel at some point. And well, I, I, I love how, how he uses that. I wondered how much of that also was what uh, Wes Craven used with the red and green sweater on um, Freddy Krueger yeah. because he, he chose those colors because it makes you feel ill, mm-hmm. which is, explains everybody's problem with Christmas these days, I guess. But <laughs> but the car is red, and that glow that you're explaining, that green glow that comes off the radio, which one of my favorite touches in the whole movie, totally. is, is so cool. Well, and it's been pointed out he'd kind of revisit the green glow at Prince of Darkness as well. And I think in both cases, it does give it this very otherworldly, nauseous quality. I really like that. It's also very retro, which is yeah. very John Carpenter. It's a very 1950s you know, space movie. You know, and if you look at it, I mean, all his favorite movies are, you know, he just recently talked about how his favorite horror films are like The Fly, you know, the thing that's, you know, the, the original thing. Uh, but also, he's a huge fan of Dario Argento, you know, and he had mentioned that, you know, Prince of Darkness was kind of his homage to, like, Inferno. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you just decorated your entire house uh, <laughs> like, to look like uh, Dario Argento. That so you, is, you have a lot of that green glow all over your... I, I know what I'm lawn. doing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and one of the other interesting things, if we're coming out of, you know, discussing Halloween, and especially in context of this film just coming a handful of years later... The car is almost shot like Michael at points. Yes. And maybe yes. it's the fact that I watch these back to back and preparing for these epi- this episode that's making that pop out to me. But there are points where, again, the car is completely still in the background of a much wider shot. The terror is just its mere presence in this place it's not supposed to be. You almost get a sense that the car is looking over people's shoulders and stuff, like out of just out of frame or out of the corner. And particularly the way and it's you know, it's also I mean, I don't think I mean I'm I'm not even a lot of people discuss how great Carpenter uses the wide frame. Like all of his best movies are in that wide two thirty five to one aspect ratio, and the way that they frame Christine when it's in the garage, it, it just reminds me. And I think you're you mentioning it is what brought to mind of Michael Myers standing up at the stairs when yes. Loomis walks into the room at the end, which somebody pointed out to me it was the, to them it was the most terrifying thing they'd ever seen that this guy had just gotten shot, and he's just standing. It is very alarming when he's just standing there, and. He, it's as if he's he has, he's just waiting for Loomis, and he knows that Loomis has a gun, and it, it's just it's there is something so odd and eerie because he just he's not even busy with Laurie anymore. He's just there, and he's just it's it is very such an unnatural shot, and it's ha- it's very fast, and I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh, it is the more I think about it now, that is kind of it's actually really creeped me out. Well, and one of the things I really love in the case of Christine too is how you know. We talked about the cherry red car not existing for that make and model, but it exists also at tension with the rest of the movie because the palette of Christine, by and large, is very washed out except for the car. There's almost this heightened sense of like hyper realism to the car beyond everything else in any shot that makes it all the more feel like a violation of reality. No, totally, because it's supposed to show you how much glow 
this gives to Arnie's life, you know. Is and is is Christina love story between Arnie and the car? I would say so. I mean, it's it's definitely in a tale of obsession for sure, but I think that you can make the case that love is an obsession also. So well, one of the things know. when I saw it when I was a kid that made me kind of feel smart, I was like, Oh, I get it. The car is jealous of his girlfriend. Because like, <laughs> it's very on the nose, like it's very obvious. Oh, yeah. But it's definitely a theme that's in the movie. Well, and I think going back to especially our discussion of masculinity in the first half of the show, the way in which Carpenter very much shoots Christine as this fetish object in the same way that, you know, you have these teenage boys leering over the girls in the early scenes of the movie from the second Arnie happens upon Christine there's sort of the same visual flair applied to Christine that's applied to every woman on screen. That's it's true. Yeah. I, look, I look at I look at things the same way. I get it. You yeah, know, it's, I like aesthetics. I love aesthetics. Okay. Well, and in both the book and the movie, you know, it's very much trading in this idea of like, why do we feminize our cars? Why do we feminize our boats? Why do we like? These beautiful objects, I mean, it's the obvious segue in the strictest sense, but why do we feminize our beautiful objects? And more to the point, then, what does it drive about the American American culture that, you know, this is ritual for us in some ways? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think because society is such a, a masculine you know, it's such a man, you know, runs, you know, society is run by men for the most part, Still, which is, you know, incredibly unfortunate. Uh, But at the same time, you get the sense that, of course, it's going to, you know, men is obsessed with ownership, you know, for the most part, when you look, think about the traditions of what, you know, men in power and what they want. And in that sense, there is that sort of, Oh God, that sort of subconscious desire to have the car, to have the house, to have the woman, to have the kids, to have the perfection, the power, the confidence, and for it to all look great. And it's exactly, yeah. And and that in the way that and they get rid of it when it doesn't anymore. Exactly, I mean, being yeah. able to perform the consummate illusion at all times becomes the thing. And actually, if we're talking about that, then let's jump over into Elvis, which is all about watching a person Mm -hmm. learn to perform that illusion, to become it in all aspects of life. Elvis is worth mentioning because he's the kind of guy that, like, women loved him and men wanted to be him. Exactly. I mean, not just because women loved him, although that was a big part of it. But, like, Elvis is like, Elvis is like a cool car. It's ultra cool, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's the tragedy with him is that he is the living embodiment of the American dream, and yet he's in a nightmare. Well, he's the living embodiment down to the inevitable downturn. And in a lot of ways, Carpenter and working again with Donald M. Morgan on this, Carpenter finds a lot of ways to frame Kurt Russell as Elvis as kind of this tragic figure. Because, yeah, when it comes, again, as we mentioned in the first half, When it comes to the performance scenes, Elvis is larger than life because that's where he made his name. But the Elvis that you see talking to ghosts is a very different Elvis. Do you think it was a deliberate decision on Carpenter's behalf to bring back Donald Morgan after doing Elvis, you know, with him? Because with Christine, you know, to have that sort of old school Americana approach to, you know, because at that point he was working with Dean Cundey nonstop. 
So why wouldn't he work with Dean Cundey on this film? I, I think, mean, I think that may have been part of it, but I also think, and it's something we talked about on our other podcast about um, that. I, and something I love about John Carpenter is that when he be we works with somebody and he likes them. He brings him back again. Oh, he wants goodness. to work with him yeah. again. Like if you were only in one John Carpenter movie, like you pissed him off. Oh, like, absolutely. I don't, I, and I don't know what you did to him. But badmouth the Lakers or the Warriors <laughs> yeah. or something. I don't know. I mean, Charles Cipher is his entire IMDb page is indebted to. He wouldn't have had a career if yeah. it weren't for John Carpenter, yeah. probably. Yeah, I really well, wish he would have indulged Dom, Tom Atkins a little bit more, though. You know, <laughs> in the case of Elvis, though, it's really interesting too because. Elvis, when shot as a public figure, looks very much like the Elvis Presley that we remember from American folklore. But I'm interested most in the scenes where Elvis is being a private figure, particularly how much shadow and how much darkness that Morgan and Carpenter tend to paint him in. I love the opening I think it's at near the end too when he's just sitting in a hotel room yes. waiting to perform. Like that's from that minute you know you're not watching. Even though the seventies, as we talked about, it was a golden age for te- for made for TV movies, yeah. horror and otherwise. You had some great stuff because it was your only other option other than the movies to get some quality entertainment. Hey, hey, it's the Friday same. Night. I believe it's the same year as Salem's Lot. Toby Hooper's Salem's Absolutely. Lot. Absolutely. You know? And then I've rattled off a couple of my other favorites like Gargoyles or uh, Don't Go to Sleep. And yeah, that opening scene with all that shadow, like, you know, you're watching, you know, getting back to, you know, the site of Carpenter, like you're watching a professional, you're not watching a TV director. Yeah. Yeah. You're watching somebody who maybe took this script and, you know, doing a little bit the auteur thing. You know, I'm going to make this my Elvis. And I was going to say, both with someone's watching me and now with this, they're they're films that feel like TV movies, mostly because the lighting, the photography, the dramatic breaks for commercials. (laughs) You can tell where the commercial was. You can definitely tell rewatching Elvis where the commercial breaks were, for sure. My mom can still tell you where the commercial breaks were in Wizard of Oz, just from seeing it numerous times on Thanksgiving. That's wild. But no, with, with Elvis, you see... He wasn't, he was making cinematic movies for the television medium. Well, and in the same way, to jump back to the point of people attempting to fulfill visions publicly of what they should be, let's then jump back to Memoirs of an Invisible Man, because for as asynchronous as that feels with so much of Carpenter's body of work, he is still very much dealing in at least the same theme. Also, um... Back to what we're talking about with uh, the way he brings his friends on, uh, seeing Donald lie as Eddie Lee, the cab driver. Or no, he was Eddie Lee in um, Big Trouble in Little China. He plays the cab driver in this movie. It was the only like Carpenter yeah. touch that I noticed. Like, oh, look, he brought one of his buddies along for this one. Yeah, because I guess in a long enough timeline, Sam Neill becomes a regular because he would use him you know, only a year or two after yeah. for In the Mouth of Madness. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of a clean slate for him because, namely, because this is pretty much Chevy Chase's show, and Carpenter at this point is working, you know, for Chevy Chase. Although I will say, with this film, it doesn't have the exact sort of wash that I associate so much with Carpenter's films. But having, you know, when I had discovered that it was a Carpenter film, going back and rewatching, I'm like, oh yeah, no, this does have the look of, you know. Sort of the the modern flair of like a an old style of Carpenter way. I mean, there's a metallic sheen to the night shots that 
absolutely feels indebted to some of his older work. I, mean, he, I believe it uses the 235 to 1 aspect ratio as well, which I know is a favorite of Carpenter's, the way yeah. he likes to frame. That's where he did Halloween, for sure. So I, mean, he did mo- I think most of everything most of from movie. Halloween on. I mean, and he, yeah, but I never really get that sense of it as a Carpenter movie on the side of seeing uh, Eddie Lee from Big Trouble in Little China. Like, not even like in the sense of humor or... Because John Carpenter's also, I think his movies are very funny. But also he didn't write the script. So. A lot of them yeah. are, but yeah. I would say strongly that this is not funny in the way Carpenter movies are funny. This is the way that movies were funny when people thought that going to the movie meant they could be politely entertained for 90-ish minutes. Yeah. It is very much a relic of that era as well. But the the main thing I want to hit on here more than anything is the effects work. Because, again, for a lower-budget studio production, there's some really impressive stuff happening here. Even if, admittedly, Chevy Chase's face without eyes or teeth <laughs> in the scene where Daryl Hannah outfits him in makeup, stage makeup is terrifying. I, I woke up... I took a nap there because i've had a hard time getting through this movie like three or four times because i always pass out once they make it to the lake house because i feel like it turns into a different movie but i woke it, it is a very different film at that point but i woke up during that because i read about it for so long and yes terrifying but also like i was impressed with all the special effects in this movie particularly all the stuff in the building yes in the beginning where all the big chunks are mm-hmm. taken out like yeah. not only is that the effect very well done, but I thought it was very imaginative on yeah. whoever wrote that part of the the script yeah, or the book. the whole the whole orative speech advising you not to be careful where you walk is genuinely kind of inspired and probably one of the only times I'd say that about the movie overall. But there's some really cool work happening, particularly with the idea of like the boundaries of his invisible body and all of that business. And I love that when you have those sort of elevator pitch ideas, that's very similar to like a Christine or anything written by Stephen King, you know, with, with the visible man, you go, okay, he's going to be invisible. And what can we do with this? And I feel like they really did stretch their imagination as much as possible with this stuff. And know? they really tried. I remember Ebert mentioning in his review, like, you know, you know, finding out about, like, if you're an invisible man, what happens if you get dirt under your fingernails? Yeah. And they do the whole thing with the Chinese food that I think Chevy Chase from 10 years prior would have been funny because I think Chevy Chase is a very good uh, physical comedian. Yeah. But as I'm sitting there watching him do it in this movie, I'm like... It's just not funny. I just can't. Like, we and are I think spending che- a lot of screen time on it, too. Yeah, and Chevy Chase, just he doesn't even seem to be into it. For it being a passion project of his, which is, I think is even more fascinating. Because I, I do think they're trying to go for some of the, the Cronenberg fly, like, sort of loss of sense and ability, you know, sensibility. And I like the notion that you can't eat because you can't see your hand yeah because i would have never thought about that i never would have either it's just it's delivered so non-committally that it struggles to land but i do think those themes are certainly there and you even see in some of the stuff especially when he reveals himself to daryl hannah and he's taking off the bandage you have these great nod to the original invisible man yeah you have these really great composite shots that sort of get at a movie that you know you could see someone arguing for so passionately at some point before it came into being. And I think Carpenter, Carpenter did a very good job at shooting all those effects. We mentioned the one with the 
the the the phone, the, the indigestion. Like I mean, when he has to wear the makeup to the to go out to eat and with the teeth, and there's a lot of like creative decisions, and and you know he takes a lot of agency with the sort of imaginative qualities of this film. I would say. You know, one of the questions I would have is, all right, so clearly this is a movie that is tonally inconsistent. So that, and that's something I will admit, even though I love this movie, is it tonally inconsistent because of the screenplay, or do you feel as if Carpenter, because you had Carpenter as this, you know, a horror sci-fi genre director doing this type of I'm dramatic blaming work? It, I'm blaming it squarely on Chevy Chase's performance. Yeah, I don't think he's there because I think the script is okay, minus the whole bit at the lake house. Mm-hmm. Cut that out. And you got a pretty good... I mean, the concept's great. You know, agents are after an invisible man. Yeah. Like, you put Joe Dante in this, this is inner space, too. Oh, yeah. This this could have been something. Yeah. Martin Short, I mean... And if you put, like I said, uh, Chevy Chase from about 10 years. Shit, five years prior. Yeah, I, I just... It, it's interesting because, you know, more I guess drugs. it goes, it goes back to... Yeah. Uh, it goes back to the idea that him and Ivan Reitman had disagreements. On the initial, you know, concept, and clearly, Ivan Reitman, you know, maybe not clearly, but ostensibly, Ivan Reitman wanted the funnier film, and he wanted to have some sort of serious take on it. And I think for a serious drama, if you really go into this movie just seeing a guy that is just trying to find his life, I just want my life back. Um, I think that's that. There's something that that's effective about this movie for sure. Agreed. You know, um, but the problem is, is that you know when you throw in like Michael McKean and Stephen Tobolowsky <laughs> and all these other, you know, it, it, there is this kind of weird expectation that you have, especially when you have someone like Chevy Chase that's at the top of it that really hasn't done, or at least that hadn't done, or maybe even never did. And you say, I don't think he serious I can't movies. Think of one role that he played that was like 110% serious. Like I think Bill Murray, I can think closest. of stuff. Dan Aykroyd, I can think of stuff. Anybody from but that this is back SNL when era. it was still bold for a comedian to do shit like that, oh, in totally. fairness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, the days of typecasting are long gone with horror and comedy, it seems. like they allow, You're allowed to do anything you want, which is for the best. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm looking back on his filmography, and at this time, oh, God, this actually is interesting. So he had done... You know, in the ni- the 80s was very kind of, he had done, in, in 86, he had done, um, you know, Three Amigos. He followed up two years later with Funny Farm. He had done Caddyshack 2, which is one of the worst films of all time. <laughs> but I've seen it and more times than the original because it was really? on, well, because it was on cable. All oh, the time God, it's, it is so bad. It's, Fletch Lives is awful. So then he does National Lampoon's Christmas Education, which is a hit, huge hit, and probably the best sequel out of that entire bunch of, of vacation films. But what's interesting about this is that he actually did nothing but trouble in 91, which is another movie similar <laughs> to Memoirs of Invisible Man that is so tonally inconsistent and crazy and seemingly is a disaster because, you know, but his it's buddy... But it's getting some like love cult. now. It's, got, it's kind of got a cult, little bit of a cult Which cachet. is so bizarre to me because, again, just like Memoirs of Invisible Man... This is a film that was absolutely an afternoon flick. If I had come home, I was a total latchkey kid growing up. Memoirs of an Invisible Man and Nothing But Trouble were two films that were always playing at like five o'clock, right before that hour before my mother would get home. And I would, you know, I'd either decide if I had to make dinner or whatever. But it was always at that weird Twilight film that just made me always think that like they're, they're just this kind of slotted, forgotten movie. And it's, you know, in hindsight now, it is interesting that, that memoirs would follow nothing but trouble because... 
They're both genre pictures in a way. Yeah, and they both find Chevy Chase in a film where I don't think he even understands how to grapple with what's actually happening, you know. And maybe that plays up to the idea that it's this kind of, you know, fish out of water sort of sequence, you know, sort of narrative that you have here. But I think it's definitely more effective for Memories of Invisible Man. Um, because I don't really like nothing but trouble that much, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it the, the, this is these totally inconsistent movies that find Chevy Chase at a point where he's probably having some sort of late midlife crisis at this point. And maybe that's what kind of carries over. And honestly, maybe even with Carpenter too. I mean, it could kind of be this kind of shared catharsis in doing this movie together. <laughs> So before we move on from the image, because we've talked a great deal at no exhaustive detail about the image. The image of uh, Chevy Chase. Yeah. The image of Chevy Chase with no teeth or eyes specifically. Welcome to the Chevy, ca- the Chevy cast. He kind of looks like Michael Myers. He does. <laughs> he does. That's actually a really interesting connection, especially for a movie that's considered like a weird footnote in Carpenter's body of work. It's like a really amiable Michael Myers. (laughs) But before we move on, as always, we have the lasting shot, our segment where I ask the two of you to pick out of the four films we're discussing this week, your favorite shot out of any of them. So anyone who feels free to jump in, please do. I'll go with Christine barreling down the street, lit on fire. That's a great shot. Uh, The music and everything to it, like, there's just... And again, like, I maybe... it's just me. I don't really recall seeing anything written about it. I love the way Carpenter shirts, shoots automobiles. Yeah. It's ultra cool. Well, the eyes, you know, the headlights look like eyes. They really do. It's She's just got so person- weird. She got personality. Personality goes a long way. It does go a long way. For me, it's going to be the shot that won me over on Halloween. I, look, I love the, the, the clothesline shot, but for... I always love the shot where basically Tommy looks outside across the Wallace house and sees the shape just standing there. And you see the kids run by, the leaves are blowing, the wind is flowing, and it's just, that is Halloween, that is fall, that is horror to me. It's just she, seeing the shadow there. And it's it, the way it's lit with all those blues and the tans and the shadows of the kids and it, it's just oh, it's just gorgeous it's gorgeous it, it makes me just want to get into a like a a, a blanket and wrap up myself up and next to a window a tarantula, read some tarantula read man. some tarantula man and laser well, man laser man and-, and i will say mine also <laughs> comes from halloween because for me it's an even simpler shot because again a lot of what unnerves me so much about horror and so much about carpenter's brand of horror in particular is the way that it can make something really on its face boring into something terrifying. So there is a shot where Michael is simply peeking out from the edge of a long hedge. There is this lengthy wall of grass and tree, and then you can just see Michael near the sidewalk at the very end of it. Before he comes out. Yes. Yes, I know exactly which one you're talking about. And I find that image so uniquely horrifying Because it's just, it's that simple, I keep returning to the idea of violation in this episode, but it's that. It's this idea, there is something dangerous where no danger is supposed to be, and just the primal fear that emerges from that, and the way in which it kind of crawls up your neck, even as you're walking away, even as you're trying to tell yourself, oh, it's just in my head. It takes away that illusory nature of the nightmare in this way that makes it horrifying. And in much that same way, to jump out of 
image now and into sound, the score of Halloween likewise accomplishes that feat because the plinking piano very much nails that feel of something crawling. Mm -hmm. Well, also has this sort of, you know, because the Halloween theme obviously is one of the most iconic themes of all time, not even just for horror, but just for filmmaking in general. And there's always the, the myth behind, or it's not even a myth, but the, the legend of how Carpenter had no score, no music that was tied to this film and everyone was yawning, all the studio heads and, he was, you know, basically had three days to kind of put this together. And as he told us, uh, you know, earlier this year, he knocked out the theme in an hour. And it's deadlines like, inspire inspiration, which is and his father had done the the had played the the type of theme on bongos before. So that's where he got it's a that five from. eighth or five four. Guy. It's a five four, yeah, five, four. yeah, which is crazy. You know, it's a very wild, you know, rhythm. You never but, use it in rock and roll. No, God, yeah, right. <laughs> and I and I would say. The thing that I love most about this, though, is that the, the it's very, you know it's obviously indebted to like Bernard Herrmann and all the um, the scores that were with Hitchcock stuff. But I don't know that there, there, there's there's a hypnotic quality to all of them because there's so much repetition that's being put on to every one of the themes, whether it's the Halloween theme or Laurie's theme or even the Myers House theme, which is my personal favorite, where it just has this sort of like weird bell sound that's in the background that's like ding 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 and there's just this tranquility to it that matches the serenity of the the houses and the 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 kind of pastoral portraits that he's putting there and for me it's weird because i find it comforting and beautiful like i there's something about this score that really just sits with me well like i'm not scared by this score ever although i understand how it can be scary um you know what gets me is it gets the me excited when I hear it. It gets me. It excited does, yeah. Like it, it makes me feel like I want some fucking apple cider, and I want to sit down and have a goddamn you know drink in the fall. Like and I Halloween triumphant off the new one with the oh, rock yeah. guitars and everything. Like you talk about, I mean, improving upon perfection. Yeah, I love that that new theme for it for sure. Um, it's, it's it's a badass how he kicks it back in and goes back down again. But yeah, I mean. You you have a you have a thing here in the notes that that I love about it, um, that I love about his score. That's not an actually you know really the score itself, but it's like the accoutrements that he adds into it. And that's something that I that isn't really in a lot of the other horror like the, uh, the other Halloween movies that makes this movie so of its time. I want to say because it does feel as if it is like something on television. Like you need those added effects to make it seem that much more the like, s- uh, the like, stingers are the most terrifying things in a movie. And yeah. that, that one, I mean, and it, yeah, I think he just uses the same one several times. I mean, but I always met, I always think of it when I think of, uh, when Annie gets it in the yes. car. Yeah. And same thing with the Nightmare on Elm Street series uses stingers in the first one in a similar way, but it's kind of this weird synthy thing yeah. that they never use again no. in the sequels, and it's noticeably missing. Yeah, which is weird. I mean, because even like, there's just a little weird things that he adds to the score that are just odd. Like, again, that bell thing is odd. I don't uh, get it. Like, I don't know. Uh, we got three days. Uh, yeah, put some bells on it. It's just so weird. It's just it. It sounds like. You know, it reminds me of the Jaws DVD menu, and you'd hear that like <laughs> the, the, the dingy, or something. yeah, the dingy thing. Like it just, it's just so weird. I don't know, but it adds so much atmosphere to it, and that's that's the best thing I could say about this score is that it. You know, he was right. Like without it, it the movie just doesn't work for me as much, like because I need that sort of atmosphere. It's so, so. simple. 
Yeah. I mean, and we talked about this a little bit on the John Carper versus the man thing, that even if you weren't that much of a because I don't know how well... I, John, John Carpenter, I think, is a better musician than people might give him credit for. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I also like, as someone who is a musician, and not, I would not call myself very good, but it doesn't matter. You don't have to be classically trained. You don't have to be good. You just have to know what it calls for. And I think a little bit of why this score is so good, and I think Carpenter has done this with most of his movies, or at least with his low-budget ones, he was watching the movie and coming up with the stuff on the fly. Him and Howarth, Alan Howarth, did that on Escape from New York, which yep. is why the music was never written. He ended up having to... Howarth had to, had to end up transcribing the music for some... Uh, release somewhere because somebody else wanted to play it because it was just like they're sitting there watching Escape from New York and banging out these notes. And I'm sure that's exactly how Carpenter was doing it. Yeah, because with this one, he didn't even get to score the picture for, for Halloween. He didn't no, he didn't score the picture for no, Halloween? No, not for Halloween. For uh, I believe Escape from New York was the first one that he did it for. Because well, he told us that when we were talking to him also. like he And, and what's, what's odd about this is that he just had these themes in his head and that's why he was able to knock it out. I think over the past, you know, over 72 hours because, and, and in terms of capturing mood, there's something kind of serendipitous about that just in sheer terms of, you know, trying to hammer down, you know, a sense of place, a sense of tone, a sense of timing, even there's something really rhythmic about the score to this. And we talked about this in past weeks with the whole carpenter sound being kind of rhythmic in and of itself. Halloween is interesting because it breaks from that, but still conjures a rhythm all its own for how the film is to function. And in much that same way with Christine, likewise, you mentioned Alan Howarth a moment ago. Now with Christine, it's Carpenter and Alan Howarth together doing one of the all-time Carpenter scores. I love that Carpenter has, he's not from Chicago, but he's got a little bit of that South Side mentality that he always takes his friends with him. Yes, and yeah. I love that because him and Howarth were working on Escape from New York, and they asked Carpenter to score Halloween too. And he goes, "Howarth, you're doing this now." Yeah. And I love Howarth. I don't like Halloween too all that much. There's a yeah. certain nostalgia for it. I like it. Did but Howarth's Halloween two score is gangbusters. It's great. Like I think Carpenter rips a little bit of it off for the new for the Halloween new score. Oh, yeah. totally. And they totally. tried to recapture it in Curse. And I always believe that. I I like the auteur thing, but I like when people collaborate, and I think it's important to have somebody to tell you no. I think that's the most important thing in a collaboration. Yeah. I don't know how much Howard tells Carpenter no, but I think those two minds coming together, and I think they're both on a similar path, and I think that's kind of what makes Christine work. But also, just John Carpenter's rock and roll sensibility, which I think he brings a little bit to the Christine score, but also in the way, and I'm sure Carpenter had a hand in choosing what rock and roll songs he was using to punctuate certain uh, moments in the film. Well, he actually, when I talked to him for the track by track, he proudly declared that he was the first to really use George Thurgood's, uh, you know, Back which, the which is a a joke now. Yeah. You know? Exactly. It's that just, is a trope for the exact kind of scene that he uses it to illustrate. I watched Easy Rider for the first time for an article that I was writing. And, you know, that first shot of the credits, you know, like they're coming down the street to Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild. It's like, man, this is a joke. Except yeah. this is the first time. Exactly. This is what every movie was making fun of yeah. right here. 
And yeah, like using George Thurgood's bat at a bone. It's good on Carpenter. Well, and in the same way, the way that he uses a lot of hit 50s rock songs for the specific purpose of ominous anachronisms. Yes. And the way that he very much pitches them as these portents of terror. You know, that was starting to crop up at the time as sort of reactionary, anti-boomer, anti-nostalgia sentiment. Totally. But this was one of the first times that you see what is, again, now kind of a horror movie cliche and standard being invoked. You see see that influence, and I don't know how, I don't know how true this would be, you see that influence on David Lynch. And I don't know if he's influenced by Carpenter or if it was that hive mind mentality that all these guys were doing this thing. Because King does it too. King mentions rock and roll songs oh, totally. in his books all, all the, time. the time. It's littered with them. And you know, it's interesting that, it's, that you mentioned the Lynch thing too because you know he does weld that 50s nostalgia into everything that he does, uh, even his more obscure stuff. And there is that weird juxtaposition of having that for him, it's more like jazzy meld with this kind of rock and roll. Like he wants to live in a world where jazz is rock and roll <laughs> and jazz overtook, you know, the, the Helvises and the, the Buddy Hollies. But, um, with Carpenter, with this film particularly, I do think that this is kind of a good teaser to what was going to come in the nineties where he really just wanted to get into, he just wanted to, indulge in his rock and roll sensibilities which is why i'm not surprised he has no problems just hanging out in the studio recording music and stop <laughs> at his age and just wants to keep touring and playing and stuff you know no there's definitely a certain fetishization of like the halcyon days of rock music so to speak well i think um also to your point like that it's also saying that the good old days weren't always so good that you know you, yeah. you love these 50s rock and roll songs but it was kind of a shitty time back yeah. then. Well, and in that same way, then, jumping back around to Elvis real quickly, you know, there's not a lot to say here because <laughs> Joe Renzetti's score is very TV movie of the week when it does pop up. I most barely of it, noticed a score. Most of it was Ronnie McDowell's performances as Elvis that Kurt Russell then delivers on screen, which are, you know, they're interesting because... They feel like covers of Elvis, but they do a pretty good job of capturing the energy of the king. I Two of my favorites from the movie, the Grand Old Opry audition is awesome. And the way that's shot, I mean, there's a little touch of that Carpenter aesthetic in that it's a lot of long shots, and there's a little bit of a dolly or a panaglide on it. But I want to say my, one of my, my favorite might be of Suspicious Minds with him and the Jordanaires and the whole gang just in the jungle room like hanging out and Carpenter just kind of shoots it like he's shooting a rock documentary, yeah. not like he's shooting a, uh, a music video yeah. or a movie. He's shooting like I'm hanging out with these guys. They're playing this music and it's just a gangbusters performance too. And like you said, Russell has that embodiment. You think he's singing it. You really yeah, do. It does I'm... come off so convincingly and especially with how unconvincing lip sync performance tends to be. There's an authenticity that's worth noting. And it's kind of crazy how much Ronnie McDowell actually did for this film. I mean, he recorded 36 songs and some of which never came into release at all. If they didn't make the film, they kind of just disappeared, which, which is, is wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's and also to emulate a voice as iconic as Elvis is just 
I mean, there's always the great debate of who's the great impersonator, you know, like, oh, did you, I mean, there's a whole culture behind it. Uh, I mean, it's probably waning at this day, at this time, but I mean, it's defining Las Vegas for a while. But yeah, I, I mean, I was actually kind of shocked to, to find out that they had another person doing the vocals for it because I thought they were pretty authentic. So No, there there's a genuine sincerity to a lot of how it's delivered. And on the same point of sincerity, you know, with Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Was there music in that movie? <laughs> That's the thing. I there is. Now, here's something wild. Shirley Walker's music is not, we're not going to trump it up too much because it's a very standard Hollywood score, you know, orchestral flourishes to illustrate moments of great drama and little else. It's not anything to write home about. However, Shirley Walker's work in that was the first time in modern Hollywood that a female composer had put together a score for a film. I just want to point out this was 1992, so it only (laughs) took about 70 years for us to strike down that particular milestone. That's wild. I I guess hindsight's 2020. Like, you don't realize how bad it really was, you know? I mean, she had worked with a lot of great people, too. She had. had an amazing resume, and she'd worked with Danny Elfman. Her Christmas vacation score was part of the reason she got tapped because Chevy Chase remembered seeing her conduct and suggested her name for this. And she worked with Carmine Coppola for Apocalypse Now, which is pretty cool. I mean, no. she's got she'd been, an, and she, she had an awesome been, career. And she'd been around for a while, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and this Apocalypse really... Now to Memoirs Invisible Man, it's, it's a 20. Yeah, that's a long gap. That's a, that's a lengthy gap. And, you know, this actually feels like a good way to ring out the third season of filmography, if anything, because if we've established anything about Carpenter, it's that he looks out for his own. He looks out for the little names, the people who aren't popping up everywhere, and he picks them up and he brings them along. And, you know, on that tack, I thank all of you for listening, not just to this episode, but for our entire five-week session here I thank those of you who have been listening before that to the past seasons of Filmography, because as we continue to learn and grow here, we could not do it without, as PBS once put it, viewers like you. (laughs) Thank you. You can even hear the voice I'm doing it in if you grew up watching PBS. It's amazing. Getting flashbacks. (laughs) Yeah, really evocative stuff here at the end. Well, as as always, thank you. Thank you to both of you for joining me this week. Thanks to the whole cast from this season for coming along on this adventure with me. Thank you to both Michael Rothman, who's sitting next to me right now, and to Kat Blackard for all the support and continued effort at Consequence Podcast Network to make this show happen. We, as always, will be on Facebook slash Filmography Podcast with all of our big future announcements about shows, programming, soliciting suggestions for future seasons from you, the listener, We will be back next month in November with the first episode of Miniography. Some of you will remember we tried this before. We're actually going to release it this time. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. In December, there will be another Christmas edition Miniography. So stay tuned to the show because we're not going to go away for months on end this time. We promise. And... Stay tuned to Consequence Podcast Network as well, because this is not the only show you can hear through us. You can also listen to This Must Be The Gig, Lior Phillips' interview series with some of your favorite musicians, The Losers Club. 
our long-tenured Stephen King podcast, which will never end. Never. Halloweenies, which is our limited series on all the Halloween films, which will end eventually, at least in its current form, but still has plenty to go. We have State of the Empire, our storied Star Wars podcast. Additionally, now that filmography is coming to its end for the season... We're going to be welcoming back Discography in November, our sister series here at CPN, breaking down entire artist discographies. As always, you can find me at consequenceofsound.net. My primary brunt of work is published there. Where can the goodly people of the internet find the two of you? You can find me. Uh, I'm the assistant editor over at Daily Grindhouse, but uh, most, of my, most of my traction comes off my Twitter account, at Mike Vanderbilt. Feel free to ask me, some uh, nasty, uh, curious cat questions if you want to, like ever, <laughs> like everybody else on there seems to be doing. You've got some really interesting. Things on there. <laughs> I think it's the same five people. I love it. I love it. Yeah, there's like fifty. There, I got a backlog of fifty. I'm like, oh god, how am I even? Well, I know so much way? about your sex life now. Oh my Man, god, yeah, everybody does. Hey, you wild. know what? You gotta be, uh, you gotta be open. You gotta be sex positive these days, baby. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, you can find me over at Consequence of Sound, and uh, occasionally at the AV Club. Uh, not so much these days now that Ash vs Evil Dead is wrapped up. However. I'm going to be busy all November and December going into, oh God, what are we going to do? Oh, we're not in Derry, Maine anymore. We're going to be going into the wastelands of Drawing of the Three, the second Dark Tower book. I'm not going to be on that episode, but I will be producing it. And uh, we're going to be having some fun with Halloweenies, as Dom uh, hinted at. Uh, We are going to be covering the zombie films. So... We were disappointed with David Gordon Green's film, and we're just going to continue that disappointment going into the two volumes that our white zombie himself uh, created. And the we first a, Halloween ain't their first Rob Zombie Halloween ain't that bad. No, it's not too bad. I mean, it's two <laughs> films uh, essentially. But um, the Christmas we, we we've answered some of the fans' uh, questions and uh, our fans' prayers, so to speak. And we're going to be doing a special Black Christmas episode. So should be fun and uh, next year in 2019 we got some goodies so very very excited well and again filmography will be back in november and december in miniography form but in january we will have our next full season and we're definitely going to be reaching out to you the listeners to figure out what that season should be about so stay tuned as always, you can find Consequence of Sound on Twitter at Consequence and on Facebook slash Consequence of Sound. You can also find our specific film page at Facebook slash Consequence of Film. You can leave us a review on iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, and wherever else you procure fine podcasts. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television series at consequenceofsound.net. Filmography is produced, recorded, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will see all of you next month. Thanks for listening. Consequence Podcast Network.